Mark, you're a Chicago-based filmmaker? Yes, I'm from Chicago, born and raised. Oh, whereabouts in Chicago? I'm from Inglewood, the Inglewood community in Chicago. Oh, okay. And which is a, um, is next door to Hyde Park community, uh, which is where the Obamas are from. So Inglewood, as you all know, is a community that if you hear about the media, it's always the negative press that's coming out. And some of the people are, you have uh, Derek Rose is from Inglewood, you have Bernie Mac, Jennifer Hudson, and I'm sure we remember the, uh, the things that happened with her, her family, and that all took place in the Inglewood community. Yeah. What brings you to Los Angeles? So I'm here in Los Angeles because of my film Black and Privilege, Volume 1, is screened at the Pan-African Film Festival. And which has been going on for 27 years, and I'm, you know, this is our sixth year attending the festival. Yeah, so I'm very, I'm very excited about it. You come out every year for it? Yes, I do. Wow. Yes, okay. I do. I come out every year for the festival. Whether I have something in it or not, I'm supporting it. Nice. Yeah. What do you notice about the filmmaking community in Chicago versus Los Angeles, the energy or whatever it is? Well, and uh, of course, we don't have as many filmmakers in Chicago as we do in Los Angeles. And the energy, like, uh, so in Chicago, when I deal with the different filmmakers, you know, they're, they're always, um, they're on the hustle. It's <laughs> always a hustle, it's always a grind trying to, uh, because here's the thing, the thing is, in Chicago, when you're dealing with investors, you don't have a lot of investors who are, who are uh, savvy when it comes to investing in films opposed to uh, opposed to LA. In LA you have more investors and investors are very more savvy because they understand the uh, film business a lot more. Chicago is different. And so it brings about a certain type of um, hustle or energy from the filmmakers. So in, in uh, Chicago it's like, you know, it, it becomes I, I talk to a lot of filmmakers and they become frustrated because they feel that um, they can't find investors to invest in their project. So sometimes you have to, like I tell them, like you have to go to LA or go to New York or go wherever to find investors. So in Chicago, people want to invest more into the real estate business opposed in the film business. So the energy is, in, in that aspect, the energy is different. And from just meeting someone for, let's say five, 10 minutes, how can you tell that they have that hustle and that they seem like they do really want to do all of the legwork and the grunt work that most people don't want to do versus maybe they just say they're a filmmaker and they do make movies, but that hustle isn't there? When they say, I need you to help me, yes. When someone says, I need you to help me do such and such and such and such, that kind of take, I'm kind of taken aback by that. Not because I don't want to help anyone. I always, I'm always looking to help people, however, you have to be willing to put in the work. If you're pulling, putting, it, putting in the work and you're out here uh, at least with a, um, with a script or you're out here meeting different investors and you're out here trying to get your project made, then that's a different, that's totally different. So even if you go out, you make a, a film and the film is crappy, right? At least you're out here, you're making something. But when you're not out here trying to get things made and you say, oh, I need help, then that's kind of a problem, like, cause you know, cause we all we all need help, all of us. But we have to put in the effort. We have to put in the work. And a lot of people want more help, or they want to be helped more than they want to actually put in the work. So if you out here put in the work, people will want to help you, you know. And people are looking to help you if you out here doing the work. So I'm kind of, you know, 
Like, that's kind of the way I look at things and know that if a person is serious about their craft or not. So if someone comes and say, you know, look, Mark, this is what I've done. I've done this, I've done this. And then I'm gonna do whatever I have to do in order to get you the help that you need or bring in an investor or whatever I need to help you get your, go to, the ne to that next level. I'm gonna make it happen because I know that you're out here actually working and making things happen for yourself. Yeah. Do you think that's part of the Midwest uh, work ethic? Because I have definitely seen people from the Midwest and probably even East Coast, there is a little bit of a different work ethic. Uh -huh. Having grown up in California, basically most of my life, um, there does seem to be a stronger work ethic. You know, th those are my words, not yours. So you, no, if anyone <laughs> wants to bash and say, California people don't work hard, they can, they can come at me. But I have seen the difference a little bit. Between? Uh, people from yeah, the Midwest definitely have a different idea about work. Yeah, uh, I don't know, uh, because um, I know this is what I do know. Like when you're dealing with, uh, in particular, Chicago, because I'm from Chicago, I, I, I tend to see there are filmmakers who uh, make, in, they may get angry at me for saying this, but making a lot of excuses. So as filmmakers and as artists, we can't make excuses. You know, we can't say, well, this person is not helping me. Or we can't say, uh, because my film didn't get in Sundance, what we have to do is we have to go out, you know, and we have to just start to do the work. And um, so I don't want to say that the work ethic is different because people in L.A., you know, you have again, you have more films that are being made. You have a lot of independent films that are being made and in Chicago. We don't have a lot of independent films that are being made constantly or consistently. So um, I don't know if if I can say that the work ethic in L.A. among filmmakers is, is greater than the work ethic in the mid, with filmmakers in the Midwest. Right. Now, again, we talk about the Midwest, so I, I mean, I don't know what's going on in Detroit, I don't know what's going on in Michigan, uh, in the other parts of the Midwest, but as far as Chicago, I know that we're not being consistent enough in making feature films. To go into your story a little bit more, what businesses did you start before you got into filmmaking? Well, I, I used to have a, a cleaners, and I used to have a, a, a pager business. And because of the cleaners in the pager business, it's always a constant hustle. It's, I always had to market uh, the pay, my pager businesses and my, my uh, cleaners. So it was always that hustle, always that hustle. So I own two pager business and I own the cleaner and, and the cleaners. Can you tell me what that, like every day, what that was like? What like, mm -hmm. you're getting up in the morning and what, with the pager business, what are you doing? So when I started to do pages, uh, initially my brother uh, got me into the pager business. He had a pager business that was very successful in Chicago. It was like, it was like very well known, very popular. So I wanted to get into the pager business because I saw how successful he was doing financially. And so what I would do is I would go to his pager shop and I would buy pagers. And from buying the pages, I would go and put, it in, put them in a briefcase <laughs> in, the, in cell phones, put them in a briefcase and I would go throughout the city of Chicago and I would sell them. I would go to different places and just sell the pages and uh, sell the, uh, the, the, the telephones and I would save the money. And once I saved the money for, uh, to get a place, my own uh, store, then I opened my first store and then I would save that money and I opened my second store. And I said, this is, you know, cause the money kept, cause during the nineties, the pager, pages were very hot. Right. And then from the pagers is when I decided, okay, uh, a, young, a young guy was, he was selling his cleaners. I was like, okay. And that was like, the cleaners is like right down the street from my home. And I was like, you know, let me just try to clean it, the cleaning business. So I uh, went in, I purchased the cleaners business from him and 
I had a cleaners. <laughs> and so that's what got me. And did you know anything about the cleaner business before? Not at all. Absolutely not. I didn't know anything about the pager business. I didn't know anything about the cleaning business at all. So were you kind of just like on your feet, learn as you go, just kind of like put me out there in the trenches, I'll figure it out? Yes. That kind of person? Same thing with filmmaking. I didn't go to, I didn't go to film school. Uh, when I uh, shot my first film, I had, I had absolutely no, no idea how to make a movie. And interesting story is, <laughs> um, when I shot my first film, I shot everything in a wide shot. <laughs> and so when I gave the the footage over to the uh, to my editor, he was like, "Yo, where are your medium shots and your close-ups?" So I, I learned. And I'm still learning. This is still a process, and I learned as I went along. And so I applied that same energy uh, that I had in the pager business and the cleaning business to the film business. Do you have sort of a curiosity about everything, about how it works, and you yeah. enjoy figuring it out? I, I enjoy figuring it out. Yeah, yeah because if, if I, I'm not the type of person, and I, I, this is what I tell filmmakers all the time, is just go out there, even if you feel like you don't know it, go out there and just do it, and you will, you will learn, you will learn, you will figure it out. You know, it's just on-the-job training. Because I heard Spike Lee say one time that he didn't feel like he was an actual filmmaker until he did do, do the right thing. And when he did school days, he was like, he had more toys to play with, you know? And so with me is that as I go along, as I was going along in, in, in the pager business, in the cleaning business, in the film business, I learned. I was kept learning. I'm still learning, still learning the process. Yeah. Well, in your IMDb bio, it says that just do it. The Nike slogan is your favorite saying. So I was gonna ask you why, what, what, what about that, you know? Just do it because I hear a lot of like when I do workshops in Chicago or wherever I do workshops at, uh, I, I don't like people, they want to make films, but they're this block. Right. And my thing is get over that hurdle and just go out and go and do it. Just make it happen. And again, like if people see that you're working and people see that you're doing things, people want to help. They just want to help if they're seeing that you're making the effort to do things. You know, and if people, if, if you're doing out here and you're constantly, constantly making films for us and you have someone who just doesn't want to help, then you don't bother about that person. Let them go. Don't even think about it. Don't even harbor on that, on that person because a lot of th times we concentrate on the negative instead of concentrating on those people who actually want to help us. So I say just do it. Just make it happen. Do you need very little sleep? I could see you just being passionate about something <laughs> and it's like three in the morning and you're like, oh, you know what? I better go to bed. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm very, <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm very passionate. Uh, so even when I did the pager business and the cleaner business, I always knew there was something missing and I didn't know what it was. I always knew I wanted to write and I didn't know um, what I want. I mean, I, I didn't know whether it wanted to be plays or books. And then I stumbled into, you know, the screenplays. And, um, and when I stumbled into the screenplays, I had no idea at all that I wanted to direct movies. You know, so when I actually had no other choice but to direct my own film is when I found my true passion. And so, I mean, that's, 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 that's how it's been. So you're in LA to promote a film? Or yes, mm -hmm. I'm in LA to promote uh, a film, my new film, it's called Black and Privilege, Volume One. Yeah. Okay. And so it's screened today, actually, before we have this interview? Yeah, it's screened today. Uh, we screened at the uh, Cinemark in Baldwin Hills, at the Baldwin City Theater. Nice. Did you have a Q&A? Yes, we did have a Q&A. 
It's interesting because uh, a lot of older people, this one lady was like 88 years old who came out to the screening and it was like, a, it was filled with a lot of older people in their 60s and 70s. And again, like one lady was 88 years old. And I was very surprised because of, uh, I should say surprised, but it, it made me think because this, is, this was, was our third screening here. Uh, we screened twice. We screened yesterday and we screened today. And it was a much younger crowd. And today it was a much older crowd. And the feedback from the older crowd was pretty different than the feedback from the younger crowd, and, which I found to be very interesting. But, but it's always going to be like that as filmmakers. We're going to get, you know, people going to view your work differently, you know, which is good. Therefore, they, you know, they can sit back and they can debate about it, argue about it. And but we have to be open to the criticism that we're going to get as filmmakers, of course, because when we put our work out there, that's another thing, too, is that as filmmakers, a lot of us, we make films and we feel that it's not perfect. So we don't want to show it to anyone. So if you feel that it's not perfect, that's the perfect time to show it, because what happens is that you show it to an audience and you listen to what the criticism is. And from those criticisms, you go back into the laboratory and you make those adjustments and you evolve. That's how we evolve and we grow. Like my first film, again, is a film that I shot everything in wide shot. Everything was shot wide shots, right? And so when I, when I was getting, hit, getting the, the constructive criticism, I went back and I knew I had to continue to study. And so as film, that's what we have to do. We have to always see ourselves on the path and as students and always studying. I'm curious, what did the younger people ask versus the older people? Okay, so the older people, uh, one lady said that this is this is a definitely a project that we all should see, in, in particular in the black community, because we all know like what's going on in the black community as far as the violence and things like that. So she figured, you know, and uh, that she was like, you should show this in every black community. So the younger, uh, the young, yesterday I spoke with a, a much younger woman. And she was like, this was a difficult film to watch. And I was like, what made it difficult? I said, so what made it difficult? And she said, because it's hard to examine self. You know, it's hard to look at self and to examine self. And so this is what the film does, is that it takes the black community, it, t it takes us out of our, it's like an out-of-body experience, right? And for us to examine the conditions that's going on in our community. And that's the thing, that was the difference between the younger generation and then the older generation, because again, the older generation went through an experience where, you know, growing up where they may, they may live in Mississippi or Alabama, where, you know, you had black people who own stores and things like that. But the younger people, you know, they didn't grow up in that, that time period where, you know, black people control the economics of the community. So when you say, okay, this is why there's so much violence in the black community, then it's like, oh, it's difficult to watch. It's difficult to, to look at. Uh, but opposed to an 88-year-old lady who said, okay, we need this in every black community. So that was the difference. Did you ask some of the younger people why they felt that? Yes, uh, because again, the reason why they felt that is because, again, you know, you know it's like some people, right, we like, like, we like to, it's, it's difficult to do accept examination then point the finger and say, this is why th th certain things happen. So it's easy to blame or uh, place the blame on others opposed to no matter what it is, sure. you know, uh, no matter what it is, to place the blame on others instead of just looking at it, doing a self-examination and saying, okay, this is how I'm going to correct myself.
So a lot of people, a lot of us really don't want to correct self. We want to just, you know, you know, place blame on others instead of just correcting self. So from having those early businesses, pager business, dry cleaners, etc., what did that teach you about like filmmaking? So the thing is, because uh, of as filmmakers, right, a lot of us want to be artists. And a lot of us don't want to deal with the business aspect, which is cool if you don't, but you have to, right? Uh, if you depend on other people to take care of the business aspect, you will always be broke. So we have to understand business. We have to understand marketing because we have to apply those things, not just be, just be artists. We have to apply those things. So if you, if you look at the, some of the most successful uh, uh, filmmakers from Tyler Perry to George Lucas uh, to uh, Steven Spielberg, they're not only great filmmakers, but they're also a great businessman. So as a businessman, I took those same, that same energy, those, those, those same laws, and I just transferred those laws and that energy and that, um, that hustle to the film business. So I knew when I went out to make, even again, I'm gonna just use my first film as an example. Even the first film that I made, I knew I shot, everything was shot in wide shot, but I was like, I didn't give up. I didn't say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to put it out. I didn't say that I'm not, I don't want it uh, to edit it. I was like, go ahead, just put it together. So we did st still put it together. And now what I did was, <laughs> just like I went out with the briefcase, with the pages, I got copies of the DVDs made, and I went out and hustled those DVDs. It was going door to door. It was going, um, hitting the streets of Chicago. It was going to different clubs. And we just used that same energy and that's those same laws and transferred those over to the movie business, which allowed me to continue to make films for the last 15 years. It's because of that drive, that hustle, and understanding the business aspect of, of, of filmmaking. So can you take me through a day of like selling DVDs, what that was like? Oh yes. Yeah. So what I would do is I would go for first I would I would hit a I always would get like a thousand copies made. And I would say, okay, I I knew that I I had to do e events. So what I would do is I would do an event and I would do like a um a poetry event, right? And I would surround the poetry event and say, okay, $25 for the poetry event. So I would hire poets, I would have like food. And but a DVD will come in with that as well. So I wrapped everything around the selling of this of my movies. And then what I would do is I would get up in the morning, like if I, when I hit the streets, I get up in the morning, you know, get dressed, and put my DVDs, a box of DVDs in the car, and I would just go on like a busy street, like say for instance, 87th in Ashland, which is like a really really major busy street. And I would stand up in front, in, in, in the middle of the street with the DVDs as cars driving past and sell the DVDs, you know, and people would stop and they were like, okay, whose movie is this? This is my movie. Uh, my name is Mark Harris. I would like, you know, want, want to know if you would like, a, you know, to uh, buy my DVD. And a lot of times, not a lot of times, most times people were like, oh, okay. They want, they want to support you. Even if they don't watch the film, they want to support you because they see that you're out here you're out here making it happen, you know? So it's, today it's a lot easier because so much, because we're streaming, you can put your film on YouTube and you don't have to, <laughs> you can, and, and people will watch it. But with me, it was like, I went out, hit the streets. I went door to door. When I went door to door, people will come and say, oh, what, what are you doing? My, hey, my name is Mark Harris. I'm a filmmaker from Chicago. 
uh, I would like, you know, to know, like for you to know if you want to buy my DVD. What is it about? I would tell them the story a lot. And it was like, okay. Some people say no, but some people say, yeah. But every day I would go back. I would go back. I would hit different blocks up. You know, even if they say, you know, you go back maybe a week later, you know, and, you know, and most times, most times people were bad because, you know, this, this person is serious. You just can't take no for an answer at all. <laughs> and uh, that's how, that was our day to day. Just going out, hitting the, the, uh, the streets, going door to door, uh, going to the clubs and just selling your DVDs, selling my DVDs. Yeah. Would you say you're an extrovert? No, I'm, I'm more of an introvert. Okay. Yeah. Because that takes a real like confidence or, you know, special kind of person to be able to go and be like this self-driver and knock on people's doors. I mean, that's scary. Yeah, it is. But it's, it's interesting because like when I'm like around a lot of people, and, I'm, and if I'm not, this is what my wife says a lot. She says when I'm on a set, when she visits me on a set, she, and she doesn't like visiting me, come to, coming to the set for this very reason. She said, I'm a different person. And I'm like, and I asked, I said, what do you mean I'm a different person? She said, well, like, you're just a totally different person when you're on a set opposed to when you're at home, you know? And uh, so, like, if I'm just, if I'm not in doing anything film-related and if there's, like, a party, I'm, like, sitting back observing. But if I have to do something film-related on set or, then I'm more open, you know, I'm more of an uh, extrovert, you know? And, <laughs> but when, again, when I went out with those DVDs, it's, it's overcoming your fear. And a lot of us, and I think that's the key thing, is that a lot of us don't want to share our work because they fear what people may say. A lot of us don't want to go door to door because they fear that people will say no. You know, a lot of us don't want to start on that first screenplay because they fear people will not read it or people not, uh, they will not get it made. Or, you know, so their fear is the one, it, suck, it, suck, it just it controls us. So we have to overcome that fear. And so with me is that I had to overcome, it was, the fear was there. It was there, like going, you know, I was timid, you know, especially going, you know, uh, especially when I was doing like the, the pagers and because I've never done that before. So when I did the pagers and when I did the, uh, and going and asking people to buy pagers, again, that was just, that was just sharpening my skills for when I had to do the DVDs, which was what I was most passionate about. But well, we have to go get over that fear and just go out and just do it, make it happen. Just do it. <laughs> yeah. So with the film that you went door to door with, uh, that was your first film? That was, was my it? first film. Okay. And was that a documentary? No, it was it was a it was a narrative. Okay. Yeah. It's called Why Men Cheat. Why Men Cheat, yes. Okay. And of course that's a catchy t uh, subject. Sure. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. <laughs> sure. Sure, some people are gonna be buying that, yeah. yeah. Um and so did a distributor pick up the film? That's the only film that I've ever made that I have that I have no I've never got distribution for at all. And that's, that was the one of the ones that, you know, my first film again, and that's the one of the ones that allowed me to uh, get enough, make enough money to make other films, but I never got distribution for that film. That's wow. the only film. This was in 2005? This was in 2005. Okay. Yeah. So you're knocking on people's doors in the Chicago area, selling them a film about infidelity, mm -hmm. and some people are like, yeah, I'll take it, yeah. and other oh, yes. people, no, I don't want to see it, or what, what, what would they say? Well, so well, because the, this, this, they were like, what, what, is the, what is the film about? A lot of women would say, why do men cheat? So <laughs> then they want a conversation. They, they want a conversation. Yeah. Okay. And that's a key thing too, is that people don't, don't be so quick to just want to get people's money. Have that and be sincere. Have a genuine conversation with people and talk with people. 
And when you're just so quick to get their money, they're going to be like, no, nah, they're not, not going to want to support you. But if you have a sincere conversation with people and you just listen to people and give them, uh, uh, be honest with people, you can get their support. So when I would go door to door, a lot of women would be like, why do men cheat? Like men be like, man, are you telling our secrets? <laughs> and so, right. and so the women, more women, of course, uh, they want to know why do men cheat? So we had, we would have that discussion, you know, and, uh, and it would, it would, you know, we have that discussion and then they were about to, uh, they were about to DVD. And the more you have that discussion, here's the thing, the more you have, you talk, you have that discussion and you listen to what they're saying and you answer their questions honestly, they're going to, they're going about it because they want to know what this movie is about. Mm -hmm. And they want to know the secrets of the reasons why, why men cheat. Did anyone ever ask you to do one from the female perspective? No, I've never been asked to do one. Really? Yeah. Why women cheat? I don't know. Just just to kind of do like you you doing Black and Privileged uh, Volume One, uh -huh. so you could do you know I don't know. <laughs> I th what? Yeah, that would be that would be a great you know I think that would be a great top topic to cover the reason why women cheat. Yeah, even more taboo. Yeah, than, than for men. Because women cheat diff for different reasons, of course. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I'm sure. Well, did you find that there was one reason? For, for, men? for men or was it was it various reasons but it was just a need that wasn't met whether it was sexual or emotional uh, very different reasons why men cheat i mean like i mean just be honest like we really do we really need a reason i don't know <laughs> i mean for us for, for me i mean women like more get emotional attached that's why when when again that's why when uh when men we find out that the woman that we that we love cheated on us we'd be devastated we, you know we could be out there cheating all doing every all kind of things but we find out that a woman cheated on us we're devastated we're heartbroken you know we're so unforgiving you know and so i think that would be a great subject to, to tackle as far as uh why do women cheat well you know you see it in the media too and then we'll, we'll move on from this topic mm -hmm. but uh, that if, if a man does it, it's it's a little more forgivable. Okay, he's a man, and she threw him, you know, quote threw her herself at him or whatever. But if a woman does it, it's it's wow, like who is she? She's she's a bad person, mm -hmm. you know. So it's just interesting how it's perceived, you know, you know, back in the day, you know, these, these indiscretions they would call, yeah. you know, and but yeah, it's just interesting how it's perceived. Yeah. You know, but anyway, so we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great subject. Okay, all right. There's your next movie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, how many of those DVDs did you sell? Okay, so we were selling our DVDs for. We got a. a we got the first. The first one we did a, a run of like a thousand. We sold those. Got another run of like another thousand. So we got a, a total run of like, I think like five thousand. However, we was we would sell a lot for ten thousand. I mean for ten dollars. Sometimes we would do two for ten. Or things like that. So we told we sold over over the years, maybe like between probably close to ten thousand DVDs. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But this is over uh, over a time. Yeah. Were you ever tempted? Because I know uh, to get those DVDs made weren't probably were not cheap. If you got unless you did like a huge bulk. Uh -huh. I, I still remember the cost. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Good. So I would get a thousand made, and it would be like eleven hundred dollars. Oh. Okay. Yeah, eleven hundred dollars for a thousand. It was a company called, I don't know if they're still in business, but it was Duplium. 
And uh, what we do, we would go to them. They would print us a thousand copies. They would mail it. We had, had all these big boxes in in in, in, um, in my room. That was just like because uh, I at that particular time, um, I lived in 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 the attic of my mom's house. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, and so I would get these DVDs, and they would they would ship. It would come to our house, and I would just have all these boxes of DVDs in the attic where I, where I lived. And um, but I was spend like you know a thousand dollars for a thousand copies like eleven hundred dollars for a thousand copies were you ever tempted to buy a huge like even more or were you afraid that somehow you wouldn't be able to sell them out or you just wanted to do it in certain increments i wanted to do them a thousand each because i knew i but before i actually here's the thing before i actually sold the dvds i already knew like how to get rid of at least 300. And that is what I was telling you about is I would do events, like I would do a poetry event and where I would sell tickets for $25, where, you know, uh, where you get poetry, you get food and you get a DVD. So I knew that, I knew that based off that dollar amount that I was going to at least make my thousand dollars back plus a profit where I can reinvest. And then from there, what I can do is because I wanted to people to get the DVD I can I can sell a DVD for five dollars, you know, or I can just sell it. Or somebody say, okay, I don't have the money at this particular time. Can I pay you back? You know, so you have to take that chance. Okay, you know, give them a DVD, uh, give them a DVD. And some a lot of times, like when people uh, say that you know they don't have the money, they really don't have the money. If you give them the, the movie, and they'll come back, they may even give you a twenty dollar bill. And that happened as well. It, the movie was ten dollars, and I would give. I was like, you know, don't worry about it. You know, just take the DVD. And they would come back and they would give me a $20. So those things, you know, so we came, you know, we want to, because my mission was to get the movie out, get the movie out. So, but I knew I had to make that investment back. Right. So yeah. you knew if I do this, only this amount, I feel confident that I can get them out. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Your nickname is Dino? Dino. <laughs> how did you how did you get that? Uh I believe from the Flint my sister I have my sister. Her name is Coco. Oh, okay. From Flintstones. Nice. Yeah. So Dino is like like if someone calls me Dino, I know that's that's someone from way back then when I was growing up. Or my mom or my you know, my mom, she calls me Dino. Uh my uh my brothers and sisters, my cousins, they all call me Dino. Or anybody that's a friend that calls me Dino is someone I grew up with. Yeah. Inglewood, Chicago. Chicago. Okay. Yes. And so when did you start the film festival there? We started in 2000, oh my God, seven years ago, which will be 2010. So we, 20, uh, 2010 is when we had a, uh, a ribbon cutting event. And we screened like my old films. We did the ribbon cutting event. And then the next year was our first, uh, the first um, uh, festival. And then where we had film festivals from, uh, films from all over the country that came in. And one of the things that we did was uh, in order to get, because it was very important for us to, especially when we knew filmmakers from different parts of the world were coming in to, screen, to, uh, to, the, to the screening, is to make sure that we packed out the theater. So what we would do over, over the longest period of time is we would give tickets away. We would work with different uh, uh, organizations within the Inglewood community. And what they would do is that they would give out uh, tickets to the different um, residents in the Inglewood. And that's how we were able to continue to pack the theaters. But again, you know, it was, we had to pay for the theater. 
Uh, we had to pay for travel and things like that because, you know, we want to bring the, the filmmakers in. We want to bring in guests in. So it got pretty expensive, but we want to bring it back either this year or next year. We definitely want to bring the festival back. Yeah. And how many seats did you have to fill? 300. Oh, 300. Yes. Okay, wow. It was like the total was, to be exact, it was like 297 at the, uh, it was at the Ice Theater. And another thing, too, is that uh, Inglewood, there's no, there's no actual movie theater there. So we had to do the uh, the actual screening of the films and the, the Chatham area, which is kind of next door to Inglewood. But when we did our workshops, we did workshop and all of our workshops and our panels, all of those things were free and uh, free to the community. And so, but we kept those things in Inglewood, like at the library or at the uh, at local schools. So we kept those things in, in the Inglewood community. So aside from your love of film and storytelling. Why was it important to you to do this community-based um, film festival? Uh, because I knew that if you look at the Inglewood community, you know, we know uh, most people, we hear about the violence in Chicago. And I'm sure like, like whenever I travel, no matter, no matter where I travel throughout this, throughout the, not just the country, but throughout the world, I go to Belize, and we, I travel to Belize a lot. But people, uh, People always talk about when you tell them you're from Chicago. They talk about the violence in Chicago, so they make you think that you know you you come out and it's like doing the Al Capone days where people get shot up, which is not true. And so, what was important to me was is to change the the, the image of the Inglewood community, and what better way to do it? We know we know as filmmakers, right? We know how how. Um, the media, how film, how music, how entertainment is a very, very powerful tool. So what we wanted to do is just use the, the film festival, we want to use the films by, by um, doing the workshops and by screening positive films and positive content to use that to change the image of the Inglewood community. So that was, that's always been our objective, that's still our objective, is to change the image uh, of the Inglewood community, yeah. Have you always been a, an optimist? You, see, you seem like a positive person from the short time I've met you here and our, our email exchanges. I know you had a, a nice saying in, in your email. It just gives an impression that you, you know, you're positive and you're open to, to just different input from other people. Oh, you know? oh yeah, you have to be. I think a big mistake that, I, I, here's what I think right, right now, because especially as filmmakers, right? Because we, we control, like filmmakers, we have so much control, which we really don't understand the power that we have. So when you go to the movies, right? A lot of, you know, we set trends. You know, uh, if you look at uh, Boys in the Hood, if you look at uh, Minister Society, if you look at uh, uh, Goodfellas, right? People, like even rappers, right? Rappers take their names off of uh, movies or off, off of uh, gangsters from different movies because we're what we do is so powerful you know and so I know that as a filmmaker I have to I have to be positive because if I don't then I'm what I'm doing is I'm, I'm just aiding in the destruction of humanity and I, I never wanted to be involved in that I always wanted to say I want to stay positive. I want to put out positive content. And I've been offered for so many times to do negative things. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And uh, so as filmmakers, we just have to be true to us and be true. But we just can't do things just for money. 
because at the end of the day, we're doing things, or we just can't be in this business for money because we've been doing things and we won't be set our souls won't be satisfied. You know, what we, uh, we, we may be passionate about filmmaking, but if you're, if you're taking your passion, if you're doing things that you don't want to do, you're losing your soul. So I always wanted to be positive. I always wanted to be put out positive content. Now, am I always positive? No, it's something that, of, of course not, because I'm human. Sure. You know, and so again, but I always have to even remind myself, like, this is what I wanted. I mean, it's always been tempting. You know, it's always been tempting because, you know, especially when you're in a position where you, you, know, you have to pay your bills, and uh, uh, it's, it's always happens. <laughs> you have to pay those bills and somebody comes with an offer but an offer that's not, um, that's going to challenge you morally, you know, and you have to say, no, I, I can't do that. You know, those were chances, you know, those were things I, I've had to turn down because of that. I'm not just going to put out any, any type of images and things like that. Because we have to, you know, as, as you know, we have, we have a duty as filmmakers. And our duty is, you know, uh, first we have to be true to us. If, if, you want, if you want to be in this business to make money, okay, go ahead, be in this business to make money. You know, there's plenty of money to be made, but how are we, what are we, at the end of the day, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, what are we, what are we, how are we going to change the condition of this world, you know? And uh, so many times people, people just want to step labels on people. We don't want to real have true, real dialogue. So instead of having true, real dialogue, we just uh, put labels on people, which is, which is, very unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, and I think we're more divided now in, in recent yeah. few years, and, and it, not just politically, but just in many different ways, and, and it's, it's, it's definitely um, apparent, you know, and I've, I've read articles too that, you know, we're just more divided in beliefs or, or you know, and it's, it's, it's a shame because you, you would think that just with, you know, social media and, and everybody's access to the same tools that there would be sort of an evolution where we could just be I don't know everybody would be sort of satisfied with their own life because they can put something out there whatever their passion is and and not think that they have to wait for someone to quote help them but uh, yeah I definitely see that and I see it in the comments too mm -hmm. I don't know if you can see it in other videos comments and just how divided we are right now yes so. would you say you've always been a positive person or, or like this sort of open thinker or, or did something happen in life that kind of changed you to, in that direction I think I have always I think this is this is this is why I love my mother so much like my mother is a diehard Christian point blank she goes to church every Sunday but she never forced any type of religion on us and I never told her this but she never forced us to go to church she never forced the religion on us so I think that had a lot to do with being a critical thinker and then when I would ask questions I remember I remember when I was um, when I was, I had to be like seven or eight years old, and I had, I had asked the pastor a question, the church I, I went to, and he told me never to question God. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> but I was young, and I knew that something is wrong here. You're like, why would, not, why would God would not want us to question him, you know, if, if he's secure in his word? So, but my mom, so I've always, I always been a critical thinker and uh, from, since, I can be, since I can remember. I, mean, I never try to rush into judgment, 
you know, like ever trying to rush into jail, I have to think about it. Like when things happen on social media, I'm I'm not the person to just post or repost stuff. <laughs> yeah. I have to research it to see sure. is this stuff is real? You know, is this like even 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 um, uh, when uh, President Donald Trump tweets and people uh, share his tweets, I have to go to his page to see, OK, is this a real tweet? You know, <laughs> and so we have to search out things and to make sure that things are actually like even as especially as filmmakers, because we are storytellers, we should always research something before we just put it out there, you know, because, again, we 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 hold so much power like artists hold so much power. So, you know, we're very familiar with how China changed because of their artists. You know, China was a, was a country that was, you know, and um, was in, you know, opium and the prostitution. But what they did was they, they put their, brought their artists together. They said, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna use art, we're gonna use entertainment to change the condition of the Chinese people and look at China now as a superpower, you know? And so as artists, right, as artists, what we can do is, well, we have to come together and we have to, cause you know, we have to come together and we have to start using our gifts and our talents to change. We could change, we, not only America, but we can change the entire world if we just start to put out more positive content. You know, content that show more people, show, the content that shows love, content that shows more unity, more respect. You know, regardless of what we believe in, you know, just respect people's ideas. As filmmakers, you know, that should be very important for important to us, just to show, you know, just to do more positive. <laughs> because the thing is, is that you have so many, so much stuff that's so negative, that the people are looking for more positive content. Now, again, let me explain to you. Here's the interesting thing. So we hear all the time how black films do not sell overseas, which is totally false. This is what people are looking for. And you know what, Black Panther proved that this false, but what we have done with our independent films, we, still, we have sold a lot of independent, a lot of our films overseas. This is what people are not interested in overseas. They're not interested in the negative images that as black filmmakers that we put out. If we put out positive images, positive stories, I get so many emails from people from Europe, uh, people from different parts of America, just saying that thank you like we did a film called black coffee and it's it's um a couple of sites called it one of the most positive black films ever made right we get so many people who just email us and inbox us through social media just thanking us for putting out not to, i'm not talking about black people i'm talking about people from all across all walks of life thanking us for putting out positive a positive message and a positive images and this is what people want to see. They want to see more positive content. And it's not that they don't want, it's not that black films don't sell overseas, but they don't want to see the, the negative energy, the negative images. They want to see positive images. Cause you know, uh, leave the negative images where you want to leave them at, but more people want to see the more positive stuff. And if we show the more positive images of black people, you know, as black filmmakers, then those films would do very well overseas. They don't. They don't want that type of stuff, you know. And they shouldn't. They shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to give it to them, you know. We should, you know. So that's that's the thing. Did you always feel this way? I mean, did you go through a phase where, as a teenager, let's say, you liked certain films, but then you realized, you know what, I'm not feeling how 
people are represented in these movies? See, I, I, when I came up, I came up, I was a big John Hughes fan. He's from Chicago, love John Hughes. I used to sit back and watch his, watch his films and study his films. And one of the things is I love the storyteller. I love the love stories. I can relate to those stories. Um, so coming up, those are the type of films that I was influenced by. You know, uh, then you had Spike Lee to come along. You know, more up, uh, you know, in his earlier stuff, so many positive images. So now, again, I love me some good fellas. <laughs> I love, I mean, I love Mark Scorsese. I love Mark Scorsese, you know. Uh, so I look at, yeah, I look at those films, but uh, I always knew, you know, but again, like my favorite filmmakers, like the John Hughes, my favorite, uh, you know, uh, the Spike Lees, and I love Kevin Smith too. I know a lot of, you know, a lot of people uh, talk about, you know, some of his films and how, you know, but if, if we watch, carefully watch Kevin Smith's films, he's saying some really deep stuff in his films. You know, especially Dogma. Dogma is what, like, Dogma is like one of my favorite films. You know, so, yeah, I mean, you know, so, but sometimes, sometimes here, like, even with, if you just take Dogma, for example, like Kevin Smith's film, Kevin Smith gives you his films, like, they're raw, there's a lot of profanity in them, but just listen to what they're saying. There's something, a message that he's, he's saying that we can, like, for the people, for a certain type of generation. So he's giving, you to, he's giving it to you raw, but he's also putting some, something in it that you can take and make you think. Because Dogma is great. It's an amazing film. Yeah. It's funny because he he speaks like that too. Yeah, you know he I may he him. may be yeah. funny and sarcastic, but there's like a point to what he's trying to make. So, yeah, yeah. I, I love his interviews. Mm -hmm. Love him. Yeah, yeah. He's very entertaining. Yes. We'll go back to your first film, uh, Why Men Cheat, mm -hmm. 2005. So, how did that movie's success impact you getting your next film project off the ground? Yeah. So it was it was a uh, it was a wow. My first film that ever that I ever got distribution for was a film called Black Butterfly. It was a film we made for less than ten thousand dollars, and E1 actually um, put that film out. We know E1 is a major major company, but a guy named Ellen Blackwell was he saw the trailer. I sent him the trailer. He said, "Oh, I want this film." But before then, we did we did a film called uh, again my first film, White Man Cheat. I used to love her. Uh, How if you hit me? With those films, those films are the films that you know from White Man Cheat. We took that money. And we invested in the two, uh, Holly, if you hear me, we took that money and invested in the two, I Used to Love Her. And we did I Used to Love Her, that film right there, it's it screened, and we did that film for $3,500. And it was in like 10 film festivals. And when I went to the film festivals, I didn't just go there just to screen the film. When I would go there, I would have DVDs made up. I wasn't even thinking about, honestly, I wasn't even thinking about distribution. I was just thinking about selling DVDs. And it wasn't until uh, we came and did Black Butterfly is when, you know, I said, OK, if I have to, uh, if I have to release this film on my own, then I would do that. But what we did was we uh, we uh, I sent the trailer to I sent the trailer to uh, Ellen Blackwell at E1. He said, I want that film. And then from that film, then we got distribution for Holly, if you hear me. Then we got because of the success of that film, and so what happened was, with with Black Butterfly is, E1 they, like the first week they had to reprint they had to uh, they had to print more DVDs up because they all sold out in the stores. Okay. It was in Walmart and they all sold out. 
So they had to rush and print more out. Because I told her, I was like, look, I have an audience out there. And what we're going to do is we want to promote this film. We're going to promote this film. So you all have to print out more. I think they print out 5,000 copies the first time, which I understand. They want to be safe. And so like the first like the first week or so, those were all gone. And then because of the success of Black Butterfly is, is when uh, we got distribution for I Used to Love Her. Then we got distribution for How Have You Hit Me. And um, from, from the success of that one film. And so you made it for $10,000? The, uh, the one that was in Walmart? Yes, it was, it was like for 9500 And how many locations did you have? We had a total of, I think like eight locations. Wow. Yeah, eight locations. But this, this is how we would do it. Uh, we would shoot, the way we would shoot this film, we would shoot on weekends because people work. So we would shoot on weekends, we would all then, we would take one day. Uh, so we would shoot a 12 hour day on a Saturday and Sunday. And on Friday, what we would do is we would just take one scene and we would just shoot that scene. And we would just, you know, and that's how we got the film made uh, over like a six, it was like six weeks. And uh, yeah. So that's how you were able to keep it so low. That's why we were able to keep it so low. And also, here's, here's the secret. The secret is you have to work with, you have to work with, uh, uh, I know it's difficult in LA because when you talk about locations, because people are familiar with how much, is you, how much money they pay, people pay for locations, but Chicago is pretty different. So in Chicago for us is that, you know, I would shoot at, like, a lot of the film was shot at my mom's house. I shot some of this film at my auntie's house. You know, and then a lot of the stuff we, a lot of exterior stuff, you know, where we don't need, we don't, we didn't need permits to set up. Or we would go to a park and shoot, like the park that we shot at is a park that I grew up in, like playing basketball and baseball and things like that. So we would go to that park and we would shoot things. So we didn't, we didn't pay a lot of money for locations at all because we use friends and my, and family's locations. And that's another thing we should do. You know, just look at your friends, ask your friends as far as like, you know, can you shoot at their home, you know, and try to do it. You like, say for instance, if you shoot uh, at someone's home, you know, just be respectful of their home. Maybe donate, you know, donate $100 or $150 towards electricity, you know, and I know in LA it's kind of expensive. The locations are very expensive, but you know, just like if you shoot somewhere else, you know, just ask the person if you can just, you know, shoot there. You know, and they're open to it. What do you think is the best way for a filmmaker who's made a movie, let's say, cost $20,000 to make that money back in today? So probably not with DVDs as much, maybe? I don't know. I think the best way for filmmakers to make a movie, if they made a movie for $20,000 to make that movie back, is say for instance, if the budget is $20,000, rent, rent out theaters, right? So say for instance, and keep the price very low. So if you, if you, Rent out a theater. I know in Chicago, I can rent out a, a, a 300 seat theater for like $800. If you do that four or five times, you made your money back, you know. And then you, what you want to do is you want to you want you always want to make sure that uh, when you're doing your marketing, try to do more more so towards social media because it's free. You're on Instagram. You're on you're on uh, Facebook. Uh, you're on uh, LinkedIn. So. Target, target those, the, your audience there and do group pages and things like that. And so make sure that, like, like try to t sell a ticket for like $10, you know, $10 to $12. Don't try to go $20 because it's easier to get $10 or $12 out of a person than $20. 
and people will people again they will support you and don't get frustrated and i think a big mistake as we as filmmakers what our frustration comes in that is that we look for friends we look for support from our friends and our family don't do it the people who are going to support you are the people like your people that you don't know like lawyers doctors school teachers firemen police officers those people they everyone loves movies so so go to those people you know but we want to we want to market towards other filmmakers no don't do that <laughs> don't don't other filmmakers are going to support you if they want to support you and don't get frustrated when other filmmakers don't why why are we why are we uh promoting to other filmmakers those are not the people those that's not our audience our audience is people who are not filmmakers people who just want entertainment those are the people that you market to like people who have no interest at all in a film business you know and then what happens is that those people are going that crowd like give you a perfect example when Tyler Perry started to build his his empire he didn't he didn't market towards other filmmakers or other playwrights he marketed towards the church and those church people they they, they weren't interested they just want entertainment you know and he built an empire because of people who just wanted to sit down at plays they didn't want to be actors they didn't want to be directors they don't want to be producers they just, they just want entertainment so those are the people that he was marketing toward uh, to so as, that's what we have to do as well. So I know I hear a lot of filmmakers get frustrated and say, you know, uh, I don't get the support. Well, because you're marketing to the wrong people. Market to those people, again, to the firemen, to the police officers, to the uh, teachers, to the janitor, to just the everyday normal human being who doesn't want anything at all to do with the film business, but to enjoy a movie. Sure. That's our audience. It's a little tricky here because a lot of people do these dual, I mean, there's people that work, you know, in all, all facets of, of LA and then they're also an actor on the side or, you mm -hmm. know, they're going on game show auditions and then you know, they're a fireman by day or whatever, you know, so there, there's so, you know, but I, I hear what you're saying mm -hmm. and I, I find that very interesting that you said not to friends and family or, or let's say college um, alumni or whatever. It's, so can you talk about, did you, did you have to learn that the hard way? I did. Oh, okay. Oh yes, definitely. <laughs> this is all through uh, trial and error. Okay. Uh, like my first film, you know, my first film, like I would, you know, go to, I would text my friends. I would text my family members as far as tickets. I was like, okay, this is not working. You know? So what I would do is I would go, another thing what I would do is I would get, uh, in Chicago, we call them pluggers. I guess you all call them like pluggers, uh, which are like flyers. Oh, well, uh -huh. we call them in Chicago. We call them pluggers. Interesting. So they're like, you know, a copy of the DVD with all the information on there, and I will go to the different bus stops. So in Chicago, I'm sure they have them here. People drive and they park their cars in these lots, and they take the train to work, and but they would do this out in the south suburbs. So, so the people out in the south suburbs, what they who are coming to the city, these you have all these different lots. So I would get like 10,000 flyers post, uh, made up. And what I would go is during that time when they're at work, I would put the, the flyers on their cars, you know, and that's how we would, you know, those are the people that I would hit. But it was because I, I knew, I, but it take me a long time to find out that you just can't promote to your friends and your family and other filmmakers. Promote to the people, the people, not, you know, your friends, not your, because they're going to, like, if they're they going to support you, they're going to support you. 
you know, and you shouldn't, you, you should, we shouldn't have to force them to support us, right? So if you have to force them, you want somebody to, people who are going to sincerely and genuinely want to support you, you know, uh, not just support you, but you want them that's going to come out because the entertainment is good. The quality is good. And so those are the people that we want after. It's the saying, um, no man's a prophet in his own land. Mm -hmm. Is I don't know if that's a biblical reference. I have no idea. Oh, okay. Yeah. My grandmother used to tell it to me. So, But it basically means that like outside of your social circle, you can actually be perceived as doing more and your, your, whatever you're working on is viewed in a different, different light than within your own social circle or your sort of peer group because they're like, oh, well, we know this person. So it's just viewed differently. Yes. And, and I, think, I think that's something a lot of artists deal with, whatever, whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so your, your work is perceived differently from outsiders who don't know you versus people maybe you went to school with or, or friends or whatever because they're like, oh, we, yeah, we know Mark, but, or, you know, we know Karen or whatever, you know, but it's different when it's a stranger because then they say, oh, you're a filmmaker. Oh, okay, you know, mm -hmm. I think it's just different. Um, and here's the reason, I believe, is the reason why a lot of us, a lot human beings, period, right? A lot of us, we really don't believe in ourselves. So it's hard to believe that a person that we know can actually make it or succeed in life. And because a lot of us give up on our dreams and our goals in life and, you know, whatever, whatever what we want to do, and to actually uh, know someone that's, that's, uh, um, that's out there pursuing their dreams and out there pursuing their goals, not saying that they're, 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 there's envy. Of course, whenever there's success, there, there's always going to be people who are envious of, of successful people. That comes with the territory. But a lot of us don't believe that we can actually know somebody that's successful because we don't think much of ourselves. If we think highly of ourselves, and we value ourselves, then we know that our friend can be successful. Our friend can be successful because we know that we can be successful. So it's like, you know, and we're, we're working with one another. We're, we're, we're pushing one another. And that's what's, what's missing across the board is that we're not working together and we're not encouraging one another. I was looking at a documentary with, um, I think it was about, I want to say Steven Spielberg documentary on Netflix. And Brian De Palma was saying how uh, when, when, when he was shooting uh, Scarface, Steven Spielberg, Mark Scorsese would come up to the set when he was shooting um, and they would watch his, they would have his back. So if he's missing something, he's missing shots or whatever, they would let him know, look, they would, they, would, they, would, they would have his back. They would watch his back. And these are some of like Mark Scorsese, uh, uh, George Lucas, Steven Spurrier, the most successful filmmakers probably ever. Because here I see these guys who work together and they made sure, look, this is my friend. I'm going to make sure my friend, uh, I look out for my friend. You know, and this is what we're missing. Like, you know, just going on, on the set and you know that your, your, your fellow filmmaker uh, is is uh, making a movie, just sitting back and, you know, and just observing. If you see something that's out of place, then you, you know, let them, look, this is out of place. So that's what they did, you know, and we can't, you know, we, today we take that, kind of take that, those type of things for granted, yeah. Do you think that's a, a symptom of our times or do you think that's just human nature that some of us aren't hardwired? Not that we don't want to help people, but some people, they're just super competitive by nature 
And it doesn't matter if they're friends, family, whoever, they've got to be like the top dog and they don't want that place challenged. <laughs> There's people like that's that. To, that's today. Yeah. That's oh, okay. today mm -hmm. because that's why a lot of people. Okay. So here's the thing. A lot of people, when we're in a certain position, we want to hold on to that position because a lot of us are, you know, okay. A lot of us are, are selfish. We don't, we feel that the sun is only able to shine on us, meaning that there are 7 billion people on this planet, right? There's enough room for all of us to have an audience. There's enough room for the sun to shine on all of us because the sun does shine on all of us equally, you know? So when we're in a position of power, right? And we know, and we see somebody that's out here just doing it, constantly doing it. How can we just sit back and not, I know we, we, we dealt with this, this, this thing help early on, but not even, I'm not gonna use the term help, but just reach down and say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm going to pull you up and I'm going to give you a, uh, not give, because if you are here working, that's something you earn. You know, you may, you know, that's something you earn, like, you know, and we're going to, we're going to make sure that you're taken care of because, you know, uh, if I have, if I have a, a, a bowl of soup, I want to make sure that you have half of that bowl of soup. And that's how we stay consistent. That's how we stay uh, on top. And that's how we, you know, and we just, just helping out, helping each other. Like, just helping, working, working with one another. I hate to use the term help, but working with one another to make sure that, you know, we're, all of us are eating, all of us are on top, and everyone is, is allowed to express their ideas and work their passion and their dreams, and, uh, and everyone is successful. And this is, but it's no mistake that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Brandy Palmer and Maya Scrooge say, it's no, it's, there's no mistake that over 40 years that these guys still are on top. They're still on top. It's, it's not by accident. They help one another out. They work with one another. And they looked out for one another. Do you think that the ability to, and we won't use the word help again, but I don't know if it's, okay, maybe it's altruism in the term of, of just not, not wishing somebody negativity or trying to sabotage somebody, because uh -huh. there's plenty of that in the world. Do you think that's the mark of a successful person? Is someone that's not as quick to sabotage? It seems like there's a lot of that in, in a lot of spheres, a lot of circles. Yeah, yeah. Is that human nature? I don't, I don't think it's human nature to sabotage at all. I think it's human nature to help or to, like you see somebody is doing something and you know, because we, we by nature, I believe, believe by nature, we want other people to, um, to, to, to make it, but it's something, it's something in us that's like, oh man, I have to do this by myself or, or I just have to have the, the light or the light on me. So I don't, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think people, you, you do have people who purposely sabotage other people because, you know, I just have to have, but at the end of the day, they, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that, um, they're, they're going to stay on top lab for a long time. You know, I'm talking about 30, 40, 50 years. Maybe they may do a period of five years, you know, especially when you, cause you know, it's all, it's going to eventually come back, you know, it's going to eventually come back, but I don't think people like that stay on top for long. There's no longevity in that at all. Three things you wish you'd known before you made your first feature film. Oh my God. <laughs> That's all you need, three? Uh, three oh, things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, three things I wish I'd known before I made my first feature film. I wish I, I, let me say this. 
I think because I didn't know anything, I didn't know anything at all about filmmaking. Like, um, I'm glad everything happened the way it did uh, because I think had I, this is me, I think because I didn't know a lot, it made me want to prove so many people wrong and prove, you know, just let people know like, look, I can do this. Like, I can do this. Um, and the way I got into the film business is, not the film business, but into directing was actually, I, won't, I don't want to say by accident, but um, it was, it was, there was a director who promised that, you know, I, I, I would write all these screenplays and he promised that the screenplay that I optioned to him would be the next screenplay that he write. He, did, he didn't go through with his word. And at that particular time, I was emotional about it. I was angry about it. But what I did was I uh, went out and I made my first film. And as I look back, I'm thankful that he said no. Because had he made that first film, I would never probably get on the set and start to direct. But once I got on set to direct my first film, even though I didn't know anything, I didn't know anything about filmmaking, I didn't know what I was doing, um, I knew that this is where I want what I wanted to do. So I don't think there's anything that I wish I had have known because, you know, um, at that particular time, I can say, well, I wish I had went to film school, but I don't wish I had went to film school. Um, because I, I, I've loved, I love that whole process of learning as I go along, learning as I make different films. And uh, because it, for me, um, for me making my, it was like, it was, that was film school for me. And every time I would, I would screen a film, I would get this constructive criticism. Not only did it make me a better filmmaker, but that criticism made me a better human being that I probably wouldn't have received if had I went to film school. So as I, as, as, the, as I got that criticism, I didn't go, I didn't think I knew everything. I had to listen. So when you listen to the, and able to accept constructive criticism, that does something to, you, to your character. You know, so a lot of us, again, a lot of us don't want to um, uh, display our work because of that, of that constructive criticism. You know, so there's not, I don't think there's anything that I, that I wish I had known going to, going to, you know, I don't think there's anything. I, I, I'm blessed to have took the, took the road that I took as far as, as a filmmaker. I mean, there's something to be said sometimes for not researching something mm -hmm. and just trying it as long as it's not life-threatening because sometimes then you talk yourself out of it mm -hmm. and you go, oh, well, if I do this and it's not this, then this is going to happen. And so sometimes maybe it's better to just say, like you said, just do it and then you kind of learn as you go. And, and with your first film, you said it was all wide shots. You yes. didn't have any close-ups or mediums. Mm -hmm. And so, but if you had been too like precious about it, you, maybe you wouldn't have made the first one and then it wouldn't have led to the second one. I mean, I'm just theorizing here. I'm, I don't know. No, no, I see, his, the thing is, is that I think if I went to film school, I probably would have thought, okay, I can't make a film for $5,000. Oh, well, if that first film, it was made for like $1,000. I was like, I can't make a film for $1,000. You know, um, because in, probably in film school, I don't know, maybe they're taught that you need a certain budget. But I wasn't thinking about budget. I wasn't thinking about, I, I thought, okay, I know I can make a film for $5,000. I know I can make a film for $10,000.
So had I went to film school, I probably didn't have that. I probably didn't think that way. I probably okay, I need one hundred fifty thousand to make a film during that particular time, you know. And so that's why I'm saying I'm, I'm thankful that I went in that direction because you know, I, hey, I'm saying I have a thousand dollars. I'm gonna use this thousand dollars. I'm gonna make a movie, you know. <laughs> and uh, even though it shot, it was everything was shot in wide shots. But I'm, I'm grateful. I'm thankful, you know. Because the next one, we had our medium shots, we had our wide shots, we had our close-ups, and then you know, and you know, each each project, you know, I've seen it, you know, grow and grow and grow. And I'm only gonna get, you know, I'm always I consider myself a student filmmaker because I'm always learning. I'm watching more film courage. I'm watching the interviews. <laughs> um, I'm I'm always I've always consider myself a student filmmaker, and I would never ever escape that. Good plug. Yeah. Thank you for it. Can you do it one more time? Can you do oh, yeah. it just one more time? And, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So you live in Chicago. You're here in LA screening a film at the Pan-African yes. Festival. Okay. And um, are you a full-time filmmaker in Chicago or do you have another job? I'm a full-time filmmaker in Chicago. Wow. This is, this is what I do. Uh, this is what I pro provide for my family. Uh, I don't do anything else but... Uh, um, make films. But, you know, again, I have a I have a marketing company what I use to market, you know, my films, but the way I uh, provide for my family is through filmmaking. Filmmaking. Yeah. Okay. So, for filmmakers who haven't figured out the business side yet, what advice can you give them and and how can you explain the different ways that a filmmaker can get out of having a 9 to 5 job? Okay, great question. Here's how you can definitely get out um, Okay, so say for instance, you ask the question as far as a filmmaker that makes a film for $20,000. You go out, you make a film for $20,000, and what you have to do is, okay, you have that $20,000. So you want to say, how can I make, within two months, how can I make $40,000? You want to do a certain amount of screenings so you can bring in at least $40,000. Now that $20,000, right, is going to go in, if you use that, your own money to your own money, like $20,000 to make your film or, or you use investors money, then you know already off the top that that $20,000 is going to go back to paying your investors back. So you have your investors, you pay your investors back. And you make, a, so you have a profit of another $20,000. And what you do with that $20,000, if you, you know, if you have your own, your home, your own place, your apartment, you use some a portion of that twenty thousand dollars to pay your rent off within for six months. So you know within six months that you you're covered with your rent. So you have say for instance after you pay you have another ten thousand dollars left over. So you take another portion of that ten thousand dollars right, and what you do is you have more screenings. More screen, so you take a, you may take another, do another screening, and you may invest maybe three thousand dollars of that money into another screening, and don't look into always screen it. Want to screen your film in LA? It's very expensive. Look at the southern places. Look at uh, Charlotte. Look at Atlanta. Look at Atlanta's pretty expensive too. But look at places like South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Nashville. Go to different places like that where they're looking for. Of filmmakers to come in to screen their films and they will support because no one else is doing this. Mm. And so if you take $3,000 of that money and you and you go out and you uh, screen for like maybe three days and you charge in $10 a day at, at 300 seats, 
that's a total of $3,000 a night. That's now within three nights, you're making $9,000. So that's a total of $9,000 you made within uh, three days. You know, if you, if depending on the number of seats that you, that you go into uh, the theaters that you're going to rent out. So you take that money and then what you do is you take that money, you make sure you save. So you already know that your rent is paid up for six months, right? So you have, now you have this film and you're good for six months because now your rent is paid up for six months. Now that stress is no longer there. Cause a lot of things that keep us from, from actually uh, being free uh, is the fear and is, is the stress of not being able to pay our rent. If we know we have that, six months now we know that okay we have this film that this film this film now that we have uh, that we made for twenty thousand dollars right now we want to look at how we go how what are we going to do to get this film sold so now you want to start pitching this film to you have your netflix you have your amazon you have different companies who are always looking for content like you know so you start to pitch the film while you're pitching the film you know you still have time you can still be screening it too so as you're screening your film at, at these different uh, theaters, you're constantly making money. So you have to be very careful of the numbers. You have to be very careful of the numbers. So a $20,000 film, you can make at least $100,000 if it's done properly within an entire year. And that's profit if, if it's done properly. But you have to hit these, you have to hit these, uh, these cities like the Nashville, again, like the Nashvilles, uh, like the um, Charlottes, like the South Carolinas, these films that, you know, these uh, cities that nobody's going to. Interesting. So not New York, not LA, probably not Seattle. I wouldn't do New York. I wouldn't do LA. I would do Chicago. Uh, here's, why, here's why I would do Chicago. Chicago got a lot of theaters, right? That's very affordable. You mean that, like, say for us, I can screen at the Ice Theater, which is uh, a theater in Chicago. They may charge me $800 to screen this film. But you're looking at a, 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 a theater that sits 300 people. Charge $12, sell it out, that's a profit. You know, if you do that two nights, or you do that for uh, three nights, you just made what? Again, you made $9,000. So how, I'm just curious, how are you getting people to go to these theaters if you're not from that area? Like if I were to go to Nashville and I wanted to, buy some time in a theater and then how am I getting the word out? Great, great question. So this is, this is what I normally would do is like, um, what I would do if I screen in Charlotte, if I take my film and I screen it in Charlotte, which we have done, I would do, I would partner with someone who's over a film festival or someone who's, who does marketing for like clubs and things like that, a promoter. So look up, cause you have all these promoters, like thank God for social media. So if you know somebody that's someone that's a promoter in, in these particular cities, send them an inbox and say, okay, I have a film that I, I want you to promote and maybe we'll do a 70-30 deal. I get 70, you get 30. Now, the promoter, right, is not, who maybe promotes like for clubs or parties and things like that, they have something different that they, that they can make money off of. So, and they are very open because if, if it makes sense business-wise, they're open to it. So they may take your film and say, okay, I'm going to promote it for you in my city. I can get the people out. We do a 70, 70 30 split. Uh, you take, I take 70 as the filmmaker. You take, you take 30. You can't, you know, you got to give them some for their time. And they will get the people out. And uh, they will get the people out to the, to the, uh, to the theater. And you just do that because there are promoters all over the country. 
you can find in one city, you can find thousands and thousands of promoters, you know, and just link up with a promoter and or link up with a film festival, like even like the smaller, like, even like even like the smaller film festivals in those different uh, cities. And you have most cities, you have film festivals. Just link, link up with like the director of the film festival, someone who works for the film festival and say, OK, I want to screen my film. Um, are you looking to make some extra money? And if you are, can we partner and you help me promote it? I come out and, you know, and uh, we do a 70-30 split. And most times, most who's going to turn, turn like if, if I have an audience already, a built-in audience that I'm, I'm promoting to, and I know I can get 300 people out to a theater or even 200 people out to, to a theater. If I want to, if I screen a film there, like that's just, you know, that's money that's to be made. It's a business deal. Yeah. Have you tried the same thing here in LA? I know you said you, you wouldn't do it, but I was just curious, have you, have you tried, other than with fe film festivals? We, we have screened, like when I did Black Coffee, we, have screened, we, we screened that film in LA, but it was more, it was more uh, for marketing and not for to make, to make uh, money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. But outside of that, you know, like Chicago, I've, 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 um, Charlotte, is a great, Charlotte is a great place to screen, mm -hmm. you know your films at, yeah. And people are looking, you know, they're looking for more independent films too. And they're looking for more independent films to support, yeah. So when, when you did in LA, did you, you realize like, it'll probably be a loss, but we're doing it just to get the word out. It, and you, yeah, were, you were okay with that, yeah. yeah. Now, now here's the thing too, is that say for instance, if you just want to uh, get the, the, the um, uh, marketing or just say, okay, I hear my, I scream my film in LA, to use that as a uh, as a um, a tool for the other cities, then you can do a screening in LA, knowing that you may break even, or you may make a profit, or you may or you may not make a profit. You may lose. You know, you may may go in the red. But you can just say, I I screen my film in LA. LA has a lot of power again. You know, you have a, when you say your screen your stuff is screening in LA, that's going to put the antennas up and people <laughs> want to know. Okay, that's cool oh, in LA. So you know, we can use that as leverage. Yes. Yeah. In, 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 even New York, Chicago not not so much, but L.A., New York, uh, you can use that as, as leverage for the smaller smaller cities. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, I didn't yeah. know that. How did you figure the business model out on how to make money with these small films? Uh, I always knew that I had to keep the films at a very low. So if you, for me, twenty thousand dollars was a too much to, to spend on a film. Uh, in, in particular, especially if you don't have name actors in it. So I knew that I'm going to keep the films about $10,000. And from $10,000, I can make that back within a weekend, right? Mm -hmm. And so I knew that uh, I had to, I'm going to keep these films low. I'm going to make that profit back, you know, and I'm going to reinvest until doing more screenings. You know, I'm going to, uh, first and foremost, you know, like by keeping it so low, you know, you can um, you can pay if you have investors, you can pay your investors back, whether it's a thousand dollars, five hundred dollars, whatever. But you can also um, you, you can there's this there's, there's, because a 90 minute film is like is a 90 minute film. Right. So people don't people are not we know that they don't know what you pay to get the film made. They don't they're not aware of that. You don't have to tell people, oh, I made this film for twenty thousand dollars. The one that needs to know that, but if if a film like let's say for instance Black Panther, right, 
comes out. Of course, you have millions and millions of dollars for marketing, you know. Um, so you have people who want to rush, but it's still a a, a feature film. A twenty thousand dollar feature film is a feature film. So what you're going to do is you're going to definitely use that twenty thousand. Know, if you want to shoot that film for twenty thousand dollars, you have to just you have to look at it as if as if it's a studio. Even though it's not a studio film, but you have to treat it like this is my studio film because, again, you are a studio. We are, we are, you know, we may not be have the millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to do marketing or to, to do a film. I mean, to uh, to put in a film, but your twenty thousand dollar film, you have to you have to use the same method, the same process that the studios are doing for this film. So you take it out, you screen it. Uh, you make money off of it, and you continue to, you know, continue to screen it. You could, you know, until it, because people want, again, people want to see those independent films, like Hollywood people, the, the blockbuster stuff. So this is a perfect time for independent filmmakers because there's so many, everything that's coming out of Hollywood is blockbuster, and not everyone, every, we want to see a good love story, we want to see a good dramatic film, a good story, without things having to be blown up. So this is like the perfect time for us, you know, and then you take it to, again, you take it to those small cities, you take it to those, um, uh, and, just, and just screen your film. And that's how you make money. You can make money, you can make a living off just screening your film. Have all of your films made money? All of them, every last one of them. Yeah, every, every last film that I've ever made, all made a profit. Because we make them, so like, if, if, if I'm making a film for $1,000 or $10,000, if I can't make a profit off that, I don't need to make it, I don't need to be making films. Like, if you make, a, if I make, like, uh, the movie I made, Black Butterfly, uh, which we made for less than $10,000, like, we sold it, we made money off of it, and they put it out, you know, again, like, they put it out, and uh, I can say this now, but I was still selling DVDs. <laughs> I was still, like, you know, like, if you keep the, if you keep, you know, I had screen, I was still doing screenings of the film. Uh, that's how we, that's how I was able to make my, make a living, you know, is, 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 is by screening these films, is by making DVDs, are you going online? Um, it, it just don't depend on like the YouTube, uh, uh, the YouTube and, 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 um, and what, what you call it, the, uh, Apple and all that. You have to go out and you have to screen your film. You know, you have you have to make you, we have to make money off of our films. Yeah. So you know now, now there's this new term hustle life. You know, it's been around for a little bit, and we think of all these influencers and stuff. But it sounds like you have been doing this for years in terms of just going out there, selling stuff yourself. We saw it a lot in the music world, especially back with with um, CDs. Do you think filmmakers today have enough of that hustle life in them or they view it differently like, I'm just gonna give this to a distributor. I made my film, I spent whatever time with it, three years with it, and now I'm giving it to a distributor, they can take care of it. And is that a mistake to think like that? No, it's not a mistake, here's why. I think, I think it depends on how much the distributor g gives you for your film. And we also have to keep in mind that most distributors are not gonna be honest with us. So say for instance, if you make your film for $100,000 and the distributor, and you give your, your film away for free, like you have to be very careful and make sure that an attorney looks over all of your paperwork. Uh, just don't give your film, you just can't give your film away for free thinking that a distributor is gonna be honest with you and gonna be cutting you a check. 
So you always have to leave room. You always have to leave room. Like, if, if, say for instance, if you make your film for hundred thousand dollars, if you decide, okay, I want to give just to get your film out there, I want to give uh, the, the the distributor uh, the film just to put out because I wanted to see it in Walmart or I want to see it on Netflix. But if you're not getting any money for it, you know, uh, you have to leave room. Whereas you can do theatrical, or you can do DVD. And you can do streaming, meaning that you know you have to leave room so you can. It's a partnership. If you want to take my film, okay, you can take my film, but I have to have I have to have the ability to uh, to we, we we can do this together, meaning that I'm going to I'm going to distribute the film as well. You know, you can take it to whoever you want to take it to, but you know this is a partnership, and you have to we have to we just can't give our films away to people. Sure. You know, uh, but if we do give it away. You know, meaning no money up front, then you have to have the ability to uh, make DVDs, streaming on your own, and, you know, and fight for it. I mean, if the distributors, if the distributor is honest with you, you know, they'll give you some money up front for your film. You know, but but going back to the term hustle life or or whatever it is, just just work ethic. Do you think that artists have enough of that in them? Um, no, and here's the reason why. I think with the whole thing uh, with the streaming services now, that people will rather sit behind a computer and just put it on on Amazon Prime because you know you can put it on Amazon Prime and you can market it on the um, uh, your social media, and you, you don't have to do a lot of hustle or you don't have to do a lot of legwork. I think that's a big mistake. Now, if you do put it on Amazon Prime, what you have to do is you have to still go out. You still go out, you have to go out to events. You have to have you some, like what we call in Chicago, flyers or pluggers, and give it to people. And make sure people are actually going on Amazon Prime because they're not going to know it is on there. So even if if you have 5,000 followers on, on, on Facebook, it's only going to reach about 20 people. I mean, that's the, that's the way they have it set up. So, so you know, but you can also uh, spend a couple of dollars with Facebook to, to promote it. You know, but go out and talk to the people, go out to these different events. Every time an event is going on, or even a party is going on, go out and just give out pluggers or flyers. Uh, you have to market. So we just did with For Black and Privileged Volume 1, we did a billboard, and we have a billboard in the Inglewood community, oh. which is right off the expressway. So you have thousands of people who are driving through, and they're seeing this big billboard. You know, so we have to, uh, but you have to leave room for marketing dollars. And that's the thing we don't do is that, we don't leave that room for marketing dollars. So if you raise $20,000 to shoot a film, make sure you're trying to raise another 5,000 to market the film. Because worst thing is you want people, if people not watching your film. You know, marketing is very, very, very important uh, when it comes to our films and we, we should know that, like marketing. So I don't think that filmmakers have that hustle that they did back then, you know, doing like the 90s and the early 2000s because of the streaming services. Right. You want to sit behind a computer, upload it, and then let it do what it do. But no, you have to still do that leg work. You know, just like if you drive down the different Hollywood Boulevard, you, you drive down uh, LA, downtown LA, you still want to see billboards, you still want to see uh, the posters up because there's somebody else out, here, out there actually putting those posters up, you know. And it doesn't take a lot of money to do that. Well, if you on that in that aspect, yeah, but we can still do that because it didn't take us a lot of money to put up a billboard. 
So, so there's a company that you work with or that you've worked with before to do the billboard, and then what were you advertising Black and Privileged for, like the screening or the? Just the movie. Just oh, just the movie. Just then, the movie. So when people when people drive past, it's just the billboard. They just see. Uh, you know what? Uh, remember the movie uh, Forgetting? I think it was called Forgetting Sarah Sarah Marshall or something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. Remember when? I think it was like ten years ago when that movie came out, and it was just like you saw the posters all over the place. It was like what the hell? Like, right. I think I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Like what is this? You know what I'm saying? Like people want to know. Well, it was just forgetting Sarah Marsh, something like that. It was just like just the words and people, what's going on? Who is it? What? You know, that's what I was thinking. We're like, what's going on? When is this happening? So that's the same thing I want when I was put the billboard up, when people drive past and they see black privilege. I want, well, what is this? Like, when is it coming out? I want them to ask questions because when they start asking questions, then now you're in a conversation with them, you know, and then uh, and that's what you want. You want that conversation. So it wasn't even a direct call to action for them to go to a certain site or what? It was just to pique their curiosity a little As, bit. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Drop that in the subliminal, you know, drop, you know, drive past and say, oh, okay. And they're always going to remember it. So say, for instance, if something comes up uh, on, on their social media or they go and they Google it and say, because I'm sure a lot of people are Googling and say, okay, where can I find this at? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, because, okay, the title is a very catchy title mm -hmm. and they want to, oh, where can I find this? You know, so that's what we would, our objective is to get people online and to Google the, the Black and Privileged movie. Right. Yeah. Forgive me, Mark, I've only known you for a few hours here, but I'm going to ask you kind of a personal question and I hope you won't get too mad at me. No, but, no, no. Um, What's the most broke you've been as a filmmaker? The most broke I've been? <laughs> I realize that's Woo! a personal question. No, 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 that's okay. not a personal. I mean, uh, the most broke I've been was when you, when you have to look underneath your car to find change for coffee or gas money, when you have to say, you know, uh, uh, when you have to, uh, don't, you know, I've been pretty broke as a filmmaker, you know, I've been, you know, uh, you know, especially I mean, as, a, as a screenwriter, you know, and not, uh, not having my, uh, and not, before, as far as directing, but you know, as a screenwriter, you know, you want to, you know, that you see, you have that mentality where somebody's going to pick up my work or somebody's going to do my film, and you just like, you just, yeah. So, I mean, there, there are times when you, you know, you, you know, you have to scrape under your car and say, okay, you know, for some change or whatever. Uh, but, you know, that's just, you know, that's just part of. You're, you evolving, you evolving, and you growing as a filmmaker and as a as and as a uh, entrepreneur and as an artist. This is you evolving. Yeah. So, do those times stay with you, or no. oh, they don't? You, no. I mean, in terms of in your mind, not 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 like you carry out that reality, mm -hmm. but I mean, does it stay with you in your mind, or you no. always remember that? No, I do not. I mean, it's, it's not that I always remember it. Is is the fact that. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for those times, you know, I'm thankful, you know, uh, especially when, you know, when I uh, had the pager business and um, the, the cleaners and I decided, okay, this is the film business, what I'm going to do full time and close those down. And plus the pager business was getting old. No one's buying pages anymore. And those, those earlier times, it was like, you know, and I, and I, and I, and I, you know, those early times were, were tough 
you know, but you had, it's something that you had to figure out. You had to figure out, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going <laughs> to sell my DVDs, you know, because initially, let me tell you initially, right? I had no, initially when I did my first film, I, I was like, you know, um, I wasn't thinking whether, I wasn't, I wasn't sh thinking if I wanted to sell it to the distributor or I wanted to go uh, door to door. So it was something that I was like, okay, I, I did this with the, uh, with the pager business, then I know I can do it with the film business, you know, but I was just wanting to make a movie. That was the main, my main objective is to make a movie. It wasn't just to, but I knew that at the end of the day, in order to make this movie that I, now I know, okay, this movie has to make me money in order for me to survive. So, you know, uh, you just gotta, you know, those, those times were tough, but you know, I just had to uh, adjust, adjust and, and go out there and, and, and uh, you know, go out there and, and hustle and, and sell those DVDs. Did you ever have anything shut off? No. That's good. No. <laughs> I, I went without a phone for a few years when yeah. I was in my early 20s, so I know what that's like, so I wasn't sure. It was actually kind of freeing not having fun. Yeah, yeah. So here's what I would do. I would, like, I, I, if, as long as I have DVDs, uh -huh. I can go out and make money. So, you know, I can go out and sell, you know, as long as I, I, I knew, this is like, the DVDs for me was money. You know, I'm going to take, if, if I'm, like, you know, I'm going to take, uh, 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 20 DVDs, I'm just gonna go out and I'm gonna sell those DVDs. But I have to sell for $10 or $5, I'm gonna make those, I'm gonna sell those DVDs. So that was money for me. So most independent filmmakers, I would say, would probably lose money on their projects. What do you think is the reason? Is it the mindset? They're not doing the proper research on what the budget should be? The budget? Uh, yeah, you have to, you have to, you have to make sure like when you, when you, if you're doing a film for a million dollars, you can't use your friends. You have to make sure you use actors that's going to get you that money, million dollars back. If you do a, so when I was doing a, when I was doing films for $20,000 or $10,000 or $1,000, I used, I used local actors who didn't have a name. But when I decided, my first film that I actually got, which is a film called Black Coffee, well, I actually got money from RLJ, uh, which is Bob Johnson's company. We didn't shoot that film for a lot of money, but I knew that they knew that I just can use those same actors because it would be a hard sale for BET or to TV One or whoever. So we needed to use named actors. So if you're going to do a film for $500,000 or even $100,000, you have to make sure that you, the most important thing for me was, or the most important thing for filmmakers is make sure that we are able to pay back our investors. That's very important. Now, if the investors know and, and feel that you can pay them back, they will invest. And then what you can do is you can form, form a partnership where they can continue to reinvest in your films. So again, you make, if you're making a film for, for, I mean for $100,000, make sure that you use at least two, two names at least two names that's going, at least going to get you that money back to you, so you can pay back your investors and also you can make some money. Yeah. Can you explain how named actors get you money back? So the way, the way it works is this. So if I'm like, I'm going to use, I'm going to use Black Coffee as an example. So I'm going to tell you the budget and everything. So that movie was made for $120,000. So in that movie, we did like, so we had Darren Henson, we had uh, Gabriel Dennis, we had uh, Erica Hubbard, 
Lamar Walker and Christian Cage. Those are main five. And these are named actors. People know them. They, you, know, you may not know their name, but if you see their face, you know them. And they were BET friendly. Like BET, like you show those people to BET, they know them. So when you, when you a movie like that was made for $120,000, when you sell it to BET, you may get $250 back. You know, you make it a little bit more back. You know, that's how, that's the way you're making your money is, for, you know, is television. You know, it's television now. Um, so that's how you, you know, you get a movie and you have to do your research too. Now, if you're doing a horror film, know, know the actors that are good with when it comes to horror films and know who's picking up horror films, whether it's. Uh, what networks are picking up the horror films and whether it's a, a romantic comedy, know which networks or which distribution companies are picking up uh, romantic comedies, know which actors that they like, go on their web, the different websites uh, with the different uh, distributors and see the movies that they're putting out and see the movies that are hot. So say for instance, and go to the different, uh, the different television shows and see what television shows are hot and a lot of actors who are doing TV, they want to do feature films. You know, they, of, of course they do. So if you go on to, uh, if you see like, uh, you go to like a, 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 one of my favorite shows, like This Is Us. If you have a great script, you know, that in your, what you want to do is you want to contact the agent and, you know, tell them what the script is about. You want to make an offer to like, you know, I say for instance, one of the actors from This Is Us say, I want you, it's the lead role. So you know that that t a television show is hot now. Everyone loves This Is Us. By using one of those actors from This Is Us, you know, and you keeping the budget very low between 150, 200, depending, you know, you may want to do a, a, a partnership with, that, with those actors and say, okay, I want you to come in, I want you to be the lead, and I want you to be the producer as well. And as a producer, I'm going to give you some money up front, and then you want to make money on the back end once we sell it. So you use that, those actors' name in order to sell your project. So who's going to turn down uh, like the Sterling Brown from This Is Us? Who's going to turn down a movie with Sterling Brown in it because he's so hot right now, you know? Uh, so you, you go and you just do your research as far as what television shows are hot and what television shows are hot. And then what you do is you reach out to those different actors who maybe not doing a lot of uh, uh, feature films. And, you know, and when they have a break from shooting like a show like This Is Us or whatever show they're shooting, when they have a break from shooting from one of your those shows, they may have the time to shoot your feature film. But do a partnership with them. Like uh, Gabrielle Dennis and I, you know, she just played Whitney Houston on the Barbara Brown story. Like when we did the movie um, uh, My First Love, it was, a, it was a partnership. She came on as an executive producer, you know, and uh, it was a, like a partnership. So you want to do a partnership with these different actors as well. How did you learn that type of partnership where you felt like you could ask a, a named actor or recognizable face to be an investor as well? Well, because actors are looking, they want to produce more. Most actors, if you talk to them and if the, if the project, if the script is really good and if they have the time and if it makes sense for them, they would definitely take the time and read it. And if they like it, they would join on and um, they would join on and they would come on as a producer and as an actor, you know, or you maybe may want to attach them to the project. And if you attach them to the project, that may can get you go out to investors and get the money from investors say, okay, I have such and such actor attached to this project. You know, maybe you can go to uh, a company like HBO Showtime, whatever, 
and get maybe like a, I'm just tossing some companies names out uh, or Netflix or Amazon Prime and get an MG, which is a minimum guarantee and say, OK, I have this actor attached to it, to this project. And you go to these companies, say, can you give me a minimum guarantee to say that if we finish this project with this actor attached, that this is the amount of money that you're going to give me for this film? So what these, what the, uh, a network or a television, a network or a streaming uh, network like a Netflix may do, there are no promises or guarantees. And what they may do is they will give you a letter, an MG, which is a minimum guarantee letter saying that based off the production value, based off these actors or this actor, if you deliver this film to us, we'll give you a certain amount of money. And what you do is you take that letter, you take that letter to investors to say, okay, you take that minimum guarantee letter, you take the attachment letter from that actor, and you can take that to like a, um, investors and say, okay, I can make this movie with this actor, and uh, Netflix or Amazon or Hulu said that once the film is finished, the production value is there, and this actor is on board and, is, and stars in this film, that they will give me such and such and such and such. And that's how, that's how we get my film Black Coffee made because what happened was I called up uh, RLJ. I was like, I want to do this film. It was like, who do you have attached? I had a relationship with Gabriel Dennis. I had a relationship with uh, Lamar Rucker. And it's funny because I met Lamar Rucker at a film festival in New York a long time ago. I was like, we got to work together. So we exchanged numbers. It was years later that I reached out to him. I got an attachment letter from Gabriel Dennis, Darren Henson, Lamar Rucker, Christian Keys and Erica Hubbard. And Erica Hubbard is someone I've been knowing for a long time. So once I got that attachment letter from them, uh, I took it, took those, that attachment letter, I sent it to RLJ Entertainment. And within 24 hours, less than 24 hours, they say, okay, we want to make this project because they had actors that attached to it. So if you get that attachment letters from uh, the actors plus the distribution company, you go to investors and say, okay, you know, this is how much money. So say for instance, if they say they're gonna give you five hundred thousand dollars back based off this actor, you go to the you go to the investor. You say, okay, I'm going to make this movie for three hundred fifty thousand. I need three hundred fifty thousand to make this movie. So you make the movie for three hundred fifty thousand. You take it to the network that's going to give you five hundred thousand dollars for the film. Now you just made a hundred and fifty thousand dollar profit. So now you can pay back your investors, and you can pay back you can pay them back with a, with a return on the investment. Yeah. And, and that was your fourth film that you made? That was, uh, that was film number, I think, four or five. Black Coffee? Black Coffee, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What was that about? So Black Coffee was about a, a story about a guy who he gets fired from his job, and uh, he falls for this, this young lady who's an attorney and who encourages him to go in business for himself. You know? And so now, I mean, it played on BET for like four years, oh. and it played on, uh, now it's on Bounce. And so again, I own the rights to like, also you make sure that you, you own the rights to your content. That's very important. Based off owning the rights to your content, you can always get paid off your content. If you don't own the rights to your content, someone else is getting paid, paid off your content. So don't sell your films to distributors. Never sell it. You, what you do is you license it. When you license it, do a three year deal. You know, sometimes they're gonna ask for a 25 year deal. Sometimes they will ask for a seven year deal do it three years, three year deals. And don't ever sell your content, uh, mm -hmm. don't, don't sell the content.
So what's the science behind three years? Because then if they want to renew it, you can do it. You can renegotiate at a higher rate. Yeah. Well, the science between the three years is that if you got three years, you know, so within that three years, so many people have watched it and it probably would lose its value unless like somebody from that film win an Oscar, you know, so um, within three years is that, you know, they can always, you know, you can, you, you you can take that film within three years and then you can resell it and continue to make money off of it. So you talk about seven years, they go, they, that's like them pipping your film within seven years and you probably would never see another dime but that upfront money. Uh, so you may, so within three years, you can get that film back within three years and you can resell it again. Oh, interesting. Or not resell it, but relicense it. Yeah. So yeah, don't ever sell your, your content. Control your, your masters control your content, just license your projects out. Have you ever relicensed one of your films? Yes, we just recently relicensed Black Coffee to Bounce. So it was on BT initially, we licensed for three years on BT, then we re up for another year with BT, and then after that license with BT, uh, we did another, we did a renewal, not a renewal, but we licensed it to Bounce TV. So yeah, we've, we've relicensed our projects uh, quite often. And again, that's how you, that's how the filmmakers make real money is by controlling your content, uh, not giving your content away to distributors for over three years. And that's therefore, every time you use, license your project, you make money off of it. And every, every three years, you know, you make money off of it. And it's mostly in the front end of the deal? Oh yes, oh yeah. So what they, most companies, what they do is they, they, they either give you something on the front end or they pay in increments. So they may pay, say, say for instance, if they license for a year, they may give you, uh, they definitely give you something up front, and then they may do something like every three months until it's all paid off. Yeah. Interesting. Did the companies ever try to bully you into certain terms and try to steer you and say, well, it's, you know, it'll be better if we just wait till the end of this, this contract term and we'll, we'll give you a big lump sum then? Or... Yeah, don't ever believe that. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of distributors are not honest, so they give you promises that they definitely can't keep. Uh, so if, 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 so that's what I'm saying, like, they, their job is to control your content because they know it's to own your content or to, to license your content for, uh, for as many years as possible. Because this is how they keep their company alive and afloat, by, you know, selling your, the rights to your film to, um, to the uh, different television networks and things like that. And also what they do, they call it, they call it a 25% um, distribution fee. Don't ever do that. Uh, distributors don't like it. I mean, distributors, they come, okay, so this is what happens, right? They say we're gonna do a 50-50 split. So, but we, we're gonna do a 25% license fee. So if you do a 50-50 split with the distributor, but before anybody sees any money, they have to take 25, that means that they take 25% of whatever is made off top. So what's essentially what is happening is that instead of doing a 50-50 split, they get 75% and they're giving you 25%. That's why if you see that 25% distribution fee, don't do it at all because you're not making any, you're not making any real money. And then another thing you have to be very careful of is the marketing fee. Cap off your marketing fee. So some some companies some companies say, okay, we're going to spend eighty thousand or a hundred thousand on marketing. That's not that's not going to happen. 
I'm talking about, I'm not talking about like, you know, big major uh, studios. I'm talking about, you know, the, we talk about films that are made for, you know, for independent films that go to like smaller uh, distribution companies. So, if a distribution company telling you that uh, they're spending $100,000 marketing, do not believe them. They put $75,000 down, but what they do is they do no marketing at all. So they can just do a couple of posts on, on social media and they can write that stuff off. So distribution fee, the distribution fee for 25%, do not do that deal. Do not do the, uh, the distribution fee. And do not, if, if you wanna do a marketing fee, you want, to, you want to make sure that you know where, they give you a list of where they're gonna market your film at. And not only a list, but how much are they gonna charge. Like say for instance, if they're going to, if they're going to do some marketing for in, inside of the New York Post or inside of uh, um, a magazine, but you wanna know how, actually how much they pay for that marketing. You wanna know, uh, you just wanna, uh, you wanna things itemized. You know, or you can cap it off and say, okay, just marketing for five thousand dollars. You know, but they, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do a deal with a company, uh, and they're going to take twenty-five percent uh, distribution fee, or they're going to take uh, seventy-five thousand, or or they have marketing up in there because you would. And the reason they do that is because before you see a dime, they have to recoup that marketing fee. That's how they're able to. Uh, that's how they're able to not pay uh, filmmakers is because of the marketing, <laughs> which they never do. Yeah. Did you find that out the hard way? I found it out the hard way. Oh, yes. This distribution fee, and because I didn't, you know, again, like when I did, was doing my, did my earlier films and like, you know, uh, the, I had to find out the hard way. I was like, what, what the hell is the distribution fee? Well, that means that you know, um, we charge you 25% just to distribute your film. I'm like, no. <laughs> so you do find out the hard way. Marketing, you thinking that, you actually think that they're gonna put marketing into your film, but they're not. You know, they're gonna do a couple of social media posts and they can always, you know, and that's how they get you. And then you would never see, you would never see uh, uh, money from your films at, at all, at all. And this is unfortunate. Are you able to talk about one of the biggest financial risks you've taken with one of your films? The biggest, um, let me think. So we just did Black and Privilege, which is again, um, I, went, I went to investors to get money. We didn't spend a lot of money on, on the film. Uh, but again, that's money we still have to go back and pay the investors, so it's a risk. So uh, I already, uh, I'm going to, with this particular project, I'm looking to license it out. So, you know, to get the investors back their money, but already, so say for instance, if no one wants to put it out, I already have a plan how I'm going to pay them my investors back. You know, I always, I always have a backup plan, plan just in case the distributors say, no, we don't want to put it out. And one of the things is I always try to keep the projects, the budgets low. Whereas, okay, I know that by doing this, this, A, B, and C, that I can at least pay my investors back their money, you know, and pay them back their money. So I don't, I don't go into, I don't go into it, um, into making a, a film with a big risk because of the budgets that we deal with, you know. So 
if I um, do a film for five million dollars, you best believe it's going to be on. It's, it's going to be a theatrical release, uh, whereas it's going to be on a studio level. <laughs> uh, because I'm not going to go out and get that type of money from an investor without any possibility of knowing how I'm going to pay that investor back their money. That's very important to me. Is we have to work with integrity, integrity, and make sure that you know we're able to pay because you know like people back their money, and uh, so that's that's important to me. I don't I don't take those type of risks with other people's money. Yeah. Do you pitch distributors? an idea for your screenplay before you begin making the movie? No, not, never. Uh, so what I do uh, what I do is, if I have an idea for a movie, I let it play out over and over again. And I actually, I write the screenplay out. Uh, I have me a good solid first draft um, before I even talk to any distribution companies or producers. And what I do is, at, once I have a, a, a solid first draft which people can read, but I know that it's going to have to, I'm going to have to make changes to it, is when I decide this is when I'm going to pitch to, the, uh, to, uh, to a distribution company or producer. But I, I never, ever pitch just an idea. Yeah. Just to see, like, does this sound viable? Do you, you know, would you want to take this title on? You've never? No. Okay. I've, I've never, I'm, I'm sure there are people, filmmakers, who have done that before, but I wouldn't feel comfortable uh, pitching just an idea to a producer or uh, unless it's like a comedy show where it's, it's something that's unscripted yeah I've done that before but an actual uh, scripted narrative feature film uh, no I, I really don't I wouldn't feel comfortable just pitching it out there like that you know um, I have to have something like when they say yes I have to have something I can just send over directly over to them you know and uh, so they can go ahead and read it and so we can move forward what are five things a distributor wants in a movie? Cast, production value, cast, production value, and most importantly, what goes into the production value is great sound. Um, um, It really, honestly, it's, it's, it's really, they looking for cast and production value. Cast, you know, long as you have a nice cast and you have good sound, they don't really too much care about the story, to be honest with you. They care more about who's in it. That's what they do. They're like, who's in it? That's the, like, when I'm talking to distributors and, you know, that's the first thing, who's in it? Uh, and if they don't care, they rarely asked about they want, you know, after, after you talk about who's in it, what's the production, what's the budget, uh, then they may say, okay, what is it about? But outside of that, I mean, I don't think there are even five things that, that, that they look for. <laughs> <laughs> I think they like, okay, you know, long as they can do a nice art, uh, artwork for the, for the film and put it out there, they're cool with that. They don't too much care about the story unless it's like, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't, you know, they want to make sure that the production value is there and they want to make sure that the sound is great and they want to make sure that they have a cast that they can that they can sell. But one of the most important thing is a recognizable faces, the cast. More than one or, or would one do it? Uh, it depends on the one. But I would say to be on the safe side, definitely two. 
two uh but with some solid actors around but two two name actors should 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 do it yeah but like say for, say for instance if you if you do a film with Sandra Bullock you know I don't think that she was gonna she's gonna do a film where there's nobody another uh, uh, somebody that's not recognizable you know it's not she's not gonna, it's gonna be just the only star in the film because that's her value and she has so much value now say for instance if she does say for instance she finds a script and the actors that that are right home so strong and she said I want to do this but I want to be the only face of course you know that you can sell a film with, with Sandra Bullock as with her alone sure you know that's you know that goes without saying so it just all depends on that one particular actor yeah what did writing your first screenplay teach you about screenwriting oh my god so when I wrote my first screenplay uh, I did a now this is the difference between writing a screenplay and when I was directing before I wrote my first screenplay of course see it feels is like you know you I don't think as a screenwriter I don't think that you can really be a solid screenwriter if you if you haven't studied Sid Fields. You know, and I read a lot of screenplays, uh, tons of screenplays before I even started writing screenplays. Uh, I read Sid Fields' book and I continue to read his books, you know. Um, but tons of screenplays. And so when I first wrote, wrote my first screenplay, you know, and I started, you know, it never got produced, of course. And uh, I took it out, people read it. It's like, it was pretty decent, but it wasn't good. It wasn't good. So it was only, uh, I wrote, it was only after after writing at least 10 screenplays before I actually decided, you know, before I actually produced my own stuff. So, um, but it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot. Like, that I didn't play with at all because I knew that in order to sit down and write, there had to be a particular structure. And that's what one of the things too is that, one of the things is very important as screenwriters and as filmmakers is that when you when you're pitching to to producers, you have to make sure that the screenplay is properly structured. It's, uh, use use um, uh, final draft, and you have to invest in like you have to really we have to really really invest in ourselves and our craft. Go out and get the final draft program. Go out and read Sinfield's book. Know how to read tons and tons of screenplays, you know, and make sure that when you actually pitch to producers. That's properly formatted. There's nothing worse than someone saying they have an idea, have an idea, and they pitch you an idea, but they want you to write the idea. Like I have tons of screenplays of my own, or or filmmakers uh, or screenwriters uh, want you to read their screenplays, and it's not properly formatted. I've had that. I'm like, there's no way I can like. Recently, someone gave me asked me to read their screenplay. They had the heading and everything was written like a like a play. I was like, there's a difference between a, a screenplay and a, and a stage play. And and I don't think people understand that when you're writing a screenplay, it's, it's formatted at a, it's formatted in a particular way because when you're dealing with different setups, those are very important. And I had to explain to the person who who uh, it was just read it. I was like, it's hard to for me as a as a as a filmmaker. That's hard to follow when you don't have like the proper headings on it, you know, like the interior. I don't know where I'm at in the story. Just don't, it's, it's, I can't follow it. Mm -hmm. um, and, but those are very important where the, because like now we are, this, this is one setup. So if we go outside, then that's a different setup. So you have to make sure that you, that is, that is in the screenplay, like is an exterior. 
So uh, I've read screenplays when you didn't have that. I'm like, there's no way I can read this because, and people don't understand, they think, you, they think you're hating because you, it's, you, they're making it difficult to read their screenplays because they don't want to follow the proper structure. You follow, you follow the proper structure, then it would make it much easier for us to read your screenplay. Yeah. How was it for you to get your first feedback? Because you know you talked about feedback earlier in the interview and how it's important and was it the first time you showed someone your screenplay? What was that feedback? Oh my God, it was, it was the feedback I got was, uh, it, again, you know, it was, it's something that you have to grow into and evolve. But again, like when somebody tell you, this is, this, this is not properly, this is not, you know, you, you like, or, or the story is not connecting. You're like, why, why? You get, you get, you get offended by it. But the thing is, is that you can't be because if we want to grow and evolve, we have to listen to constructive criticism. And you know, if, if someone is like telling you, giving you some constructive criticism, I know it's hard for us to deal with it. It was hard for me to do. It's like still today, you know, when, when the people get, I have to be more open-minded, you know, um, uh, when, 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 when reading my screenplays and people give me, you know, I have to, you know, it's, it's difficult. You have to train your mind. Like I have to always train my mind that, that, uh, or keep telling myself that I need, this is necessary. This is necessary. This feedback is necessary because sometimes we don't want to, uh, you know, I was just watching the movie, The Wife. Oh yes. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Excellent movie. Excellent. Mm -hmm. And when his wife gave him that feedback, he just blew up, right? Because he didn't want to hear that, you know, he didn't want to hear that feedback, you know? So, but but at the end of the day, well, the, if he had uh, listened to her, he probably would have become a better writer. And instead of her, you know, I don't want to tell a story, instead of, you know, her, what happened? But, you know, we have to listen to those voices that give us the, those voices that give us that constructive criticism so we can evolve. I know it's, it's difficult. So even today, I always have to, when I'm letting someone read my screenplays and they're giving me feedback on them, I have to keep telling myself over and over again, this is necessary. Like I need this, you know, it's, and when, it, when, it, when that feedback is difficult to hear, just repeat, I need this, I need this. Cause it's very important. It's, 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 it's to, to allow us to grow and uh, for us to evolve and just put the ego aside. You know, we have to put that ego aside at all times, even while on set. Put the ego aside and, and listen to the people who can make our projects better. You said structure is very important to you. Mm -hmm. So do you outline your screenplay? I do. So I do outline. Uh, what I do is like, again, before I even write anything or do any outlines, I have the, I always have, I know how the story is going to end. I mean, start, I know how it's going to end. If I don't know the ending of a screenplay, I don't touch it at all. I mean, the story, I don't even start writing. So once I know how the project is going to start and how it's going to end, then I start to do my outline. And once I start to do my outline, and is after I finish my outline is when I actually start to actually put the screenplay together. So I know like the first draft, we already know writing is rewriting, is rewriting. So I know once I get that first draft done, that's just, my first draft is really also my outline, you know, and then I start to tweak and change scenes and change dialogue. And so I'm gonna do a couple of drafts of that, maybe not way more than a couple of drafts. So maybe like, you know, then I, you know, once I get it to where I say, okay, I can stand to read this. I send out to different people to read it, to, to give me feedback. 
once they give me feedback, I go through and I clean it up again. And once I get like a nice, a nice polished script where I can send it to producers, and that's what I would do. Then I would send it to producers. But knowing that this is still a project that, a script that more than likely I'm going to have to do some rewriting to. Uh, even up until when we on set, you know, there are certain times when, or, or do a table read. So I think what's, what wasn't very important is even before we go on, we start to shoot, is to do a table read so you can listen to the dialogue. You know, and you don't necessarily have to do a table read with the actors that you're going to, uh, that you're going to uh, use or the actors you want to hire. You know, you can bring, use local, uh, local uh, actors, bring them in. And even before you get the budget, even before you even uh, send it out to producers, you know, bring some local actors in and just let them, you know, uh, do a table read so you can listen to the dialogue. And by listening to the dialogue, then once, once the, uh, once you, um, you finish with the dialogue, you know, ask the actors, what do you all think? Give me some feedback, you know, and they would give you some really, so the actors, they would give you some good feedback. And while they're giving you feedback, just always be taking notes. And then, you know, the, some stuff you, you'll be able to use and stuff, and some stuff you're not going to be able to use. This is something that I do, is that now what I do is, even before I send anything out to the producers, I'm going to uh, do a table read with local actors, which they're going to know, look, this is, I'm not hiring anybody. This is what I need for you all to do for me so I can listen to the dialogue. And, and they're, they're happy to do that, for, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I know in a, a lot of comments uh, underneath um, some of your trailers say the great dialogue that you have. Okay. So do you, do you read any of those comments? Like, do you go to some of your trailers and look at the... I do, uh -huh. yeah. The comments just... Oh, to, I have to. You have to, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think as, as, I mean, for me, I, I do, uh, I go to... Uh, Amazon, I go to YouTube, and I just read what people are saying, and um, the good with, the, I start, what I do is I go and I click on, uh, say for instance, if it's on Amazon, you have like the one, two, three, four, I go to the worst and I read all of the, the, the I'm, I don't even want to call it the negative comments, you know, but the comments that are not, um, like the, I guess it's the ones, and which is the, the, so-called negative comments, right? So I read those, and I go to the two, I go to the three, I go to the four, then I go to the more, quote, positive comments, you know, that's in favor of the film. But I always want to know what people are thinking, what people are saying, and how, because with that, if people are, because these are people you, you don't know. Your mom, your sister, your friends, your family, and your friends, when they, they, hate, to, they hate to hurt us, you know, you know, so when they're looking at our project, oh, this is great. This is great. You know, but the people who are actually don't you know, have not associated with us at all, they're going to give it to you in a raw. So I go and I, and I you know, and this, some of this stuff is like, oh, woof, this hurts, but it's needed. It's needed. It's definitely needed. I think that we all should go and read those comments because, you know, to see what we can all, what we can uh, work on. Yeah. So I, I read those comments. Yeah. When you do the table read, do is this more like a, a working atmosphere or do you make it more like a fun atmosphere where there's food and you're sitting around a table and people feel comfortable or is it more this is business kind of So thing? it's food. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, so when we, when we do a table read, I always have like I have water, I have juice, I have, you know, order some pizza or whatever, some chips and we're sitting around and uh because 
in Chicago, where I normally do my tiberies at, like the people that I, I bring in, these are friends too. Like these are people who I've been knowing for 10, 15 years in the business, who are just, you know, who just want to, you know, we all want to just, you know, help each other out. So we come in, we just sit back and they read the dialogue and they're very, I, I told I need you all to be brutal. I need you all to be honest with me. And they are, they tell me like, they let me know how, you know, what the, you know, or where we missing things at or, you know, so, that's how we. That's how we. You know. That's how we able to uh, evolve. But we make. We make it a, a fun. Um, and I think if we make by making it a fun uh, environment, that it, it, it opens the actors up to be a little bit more honest. So if it's all about people being rigid or business, people a little bit could be a little bit more dishonest because they may be afraid that you know they don't want to hurt our feelings or that this may be an opportunity for them to be acting it. And if they give negative feedback that you may not hire them, you may take it personal, you know, so no, you can't take anything personal. So for me, I'm not like, I like it to be a fun environment so people can be, in, in my opinion, can be more honest when giving feedback. Sure. Yeah. Like suppose I'm reading a line that says like, Joe, you didn't call me last night and it just doesn't sound right. Is the actor gonna say, can I just stop here for a second? Can I say, What's up with not calling me? Or so where were you? Instead, I mean, like, how how are they giving you feedback? Are they doing it while they're reading or no afterwards? Oh, afterwards. Yeah, okay, yeah, after, okay. Yeah. So the rule is to just read through one time. Mm -hmm. and, it, and what we do is we read through one time, and while we're reading through, they're taking notes. And while they're taking notes, what we do is after after they finish reading the screenplay, then we go through and we we know, uh, and we um, and they give notes. Oh, now there may be okay. a situation where. Like we reading through, and somebody may stop and say that, you know, st stop and say that. But I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, um, I don't stop them. I'm like, you know, and we may, but I don't because we, I want to stay on that, stay focused on finishing the screenplay. I let them say, but we don't stay on it for very long. So gotcha. it's okay. We don't get back to that. So we make a notation and we come back to that. But we definitely want to stay focused and get get over the, get done with the screenplay. And once we get done with the screenplay. And then, you know, everybody's just like going in, digging in. So do you, when you do the note session with the actors, do you do it in, in order of the script? Like you start with the first page and... Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, first, for, what I do is first is I, I say, okay, um, I allow them to, like, I say, like, go around the table. We go around the table and say, give me your feedback, you know. And, and they, it's like... I don't too much like the positive feedback. I don't pay too much attention to the, to the positive feedback. It's there, I have it there, but I want to hear the negative feedback or the, the feedback that I'm going to use in order to make the story better. The positive stuff, the stuff that's good in the screenplay is there. Cool. But the stuff that, uh, that's, that we need to change or tweak, those are the type of things that I like to hear or want to hear. So once we go through the round the table and everybody give their take on what they thought about the screenplay, how we can make it better, then we go, okay, um, we go, then we go through the, the to the script and say, then I start asking questions. So what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? Do you like this or don't you? Uh, so I start to ask questions so I can get deep, deep into the screenplay. And, you know, and then once you start asking questions to the actors, it's like, I need you, I really need y'all to tell me, give me your honest opinion about this you know and they open up and they give it to you and they say you know I don't feel like my character would do that yes oh okay. Oh yeah oh, you okay. hear that a lot I don't think you like um, 
uh, oh, you, you hit, hit I, I don't think, I don't think my character would do that. And I'm like, oh, why don't you think that this character would do that? You know, and here's why. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, then you go in, you, you make that adjustment. What are your secrets to writing great dialogue? So this is what I do. This is, well, I haven't done it in a long time, maybe in quite a few years, but what I would do is, I would, well, in this aspect. So early on in my film career, I would write the, the, the CTS with just the, the bus, the train, and I would just listen to people talk. And based off listening to people talk, I just get a feel of, like, I just sit there and just listen to people talk. And now it's I'm always listening to people talk. And like if I'm at a grocery store, it's always I'm, I'm eavesdropping. So I can know how, you know, like people like I, I'm picking up on certain things. The flow, the, the, the flow of dialogue and uh, I'm just I'm just listening. So I think that that's very, very important is just to listen. And then also, I think uh, with, when it comes to great dialogue, like Kevin Smith is great when it comes to dialogue. I think his, his film should be studied because his dialogue is so, is, is amazing. So uh, definitely look at films with great dialogue and you know, and uh, but I, one of the most important things for me is to actually go to different places and always listen to when people talk. We have to listen and uh, whether it's the church, whether it's regardless of where you at, the grocery store, just listen to the conversations, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you have time to go down to Venice Beach, but if you walk up and down that strand area, wow, you will hear just like these snippets of the most fascinating conversation from people. Ooh, yes. Really, I mean, some of it can't even, I, I can't even repeat. It's so, you know. Coffee shops are great too. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. yeah. So I go, I, like in Chicago, I go to a coffee, I go to, I just sit there like, and I'm listening to people. Like, listen, I'm like, this is some interesting. And I pick up words <laughs> and like words like, you know, especially from young people. And I hear like stuff they, and then another thing too is that like my sons, like my sons, they're young, but you know, and they say things that I'm like, what the hell, what, what does this mean? So I had to call my sons up and ask them, what does this mean? I see stuff on Facebook that people post and stuff I have no, I'm like, and I call my sons, I'm like, what does this actually mean? And they have to ask, tell me the meaning to it. And you know, if I want to use it, then you know, you know, those type of things I do as well, yeah. Have you ever written a screenplay where the intention was not to film it yourself? Was it to just write it for a director for hire to make or huh? another company to take on? Yeah, my first 10 screenplays were like that. Uh, was was actually, it was written for other directors to direct uh, because I had no desire at all to direct films at all. Uh, it wasn't until I did White Man Cheat and then everything after that is for me, it was like, I'm going to direct this stuff. Uh, but my earlier, everything that, that was written uh, prior to me directing, my first feature was for other directors to direct, you know, because I never had the desire to act, ever, ever direct a film until I actually got on a set for the first time. And I was like, oh, this is what, this is, this is what I'm passionate about. Were you, were you nervous or you just didn't want to have that responsibility? of directing and managing 50 things at once? Um, well, the, the first, when I first got on the film set, days leading up to uh, directing, I was definitely nervous. Uh, but it wasn't because I didn't want to manage. Uh, it was because I was, uh, I didn't have the confidence 
because uh, I didn't know what I was doing. So there was that insecurity of not knowing what I was doing. Um, so it, we had all of those things going on. You know, I was I was insecure. I was I was uh, I didn't have the confidence that I have now um, because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but it's you know, and this was like this has been quite a few films. Whereas you know, um, it took a while for me to get the confidence to be able to actually deal with actors, uh, the confidence to deal with. Um, uh, know how to set up do my shot list and all that kind of stuff so this was over a period of time it was just I didn't just direct my first film then my second film I knew it this was again like for me it was going through film school every project is going through film school and so but it was it was as I was learning my confidence I was building my confidence up at the same time because again if you don't know uh, if you don't know what you're doing, you, 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 you're insecure about what you're doing. And I was very, uh, I wasn't secure in, as far as being a director, because I didn't have the knowledge <laughs> uh, of what I was doing, so. I would imagine you were secure with sports. You said earlier in mm -hmm. the interview that you played with baseball and mm -hmm. basketball at this local park or something. Mm -hmm. So could you take that same feeling of confidence to this? Because in some ways it's similar, I mean, you're, you're in a big arena, you're playing with a bunch of people, some are on your team, maybe some aren't, and you know, you're, you're kind of moving around, there's a lot of moving pieces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, so when, when, as it relates to sports, even as a, because I play, I play Little League Baseball, which I wasn't very good at baseball, uh, so when, when, when I play, I, I wanted to, cause I, I'm a Cubs fan, I was, Love Sean Dunstan, he was like the shortstop for uh, Chicago Cubs. And I wanted to play shortstop only because I saw it, you know, I was like a Sean Dunstan fan. Uh, uh, a fan. And so when I got to Little League and I wanted to play, you know, I wanted to play Little League, they would hit the ball like, I don't know about this. So there was this, still an insecurity because I wasn't a good baseball player. Now basketball was different. I was pretty good at basketball. And I also wrestled. I was a wrestler in high school. And so I was pretty good. I was pretty good at wrestling. But even when I started wrestling, when I was losing, you know, there was still that, I had to get that confidence to know that I can win. So when it came to my second year, and so like, well, my, this is what my coach did, my wrestling coach did. Like my first year, I didn't go downstate. I was, cause I was, that was my first year wrestling. So I was losing a lot, but he took me downstate with the other uh, uh, city champions. So to help me to see how, as a wrestler, but that built my confidence up. I was like, man, I can do this. So the next year I went, I placed in city, and the year after that I placed in city, so the next two years, I went downstate. But that was, I had to have my confidence built. You know, and as a, as a, as a filmmaker, when I first hit that set, you know, um, I wasn't sure of who I was as a filmmaker. You know, it was that nervousness. Uh, because, you know, but at the same time, it was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I mean, it's, I wasn't afraid. I overcame that fear, but I just needed more confidence, you know, because I didn't, I didn't have that, I liked the knowledge. But once I started to go and do it, and do it more, and do it more, and do it more, let's just give you an example, like, you know, like when a, a father is, tells his son to jump off a porch, and so he can catch him, 
So, and the son, you know, he's hesitant at first. So he does it one time. Then the second time is it becomes so natural for him to do it. So easy for him to do it because he has that confidence that his, his father's going to catch him. It was the same with me. Like once I did it one time, okay, okay, this is, I like this. Did the second time, third time, fourth time. And with each project, I was building my confidence up because I was learning more and I was open to, I was open to, again, the constructive criticism. I was open to uh, working with collaborating and, and listening to people who knew more than I knew. And I had to put the ego aside and say, okay, I want to learn this. I this is what I want to do. So I didn't go on this film set with pride or with ego. I went on there because I knew this is something I love and this is something that I wanted to learn, you know? So I had to put all that, that, that aside, you know, and I had to overcome that fear. But that confidence is, I had to build my confidence. Why is it important for you to produce everything that you write? So I can control it. Um, not that I'm a control freak, but the thing is, is that I have to make sure that, uh, that again, I, co I control the, the rights to my project because not only would I uh, benefit from owning my own content, but my sons would benefit and their children would benefit. You know, so that's very important for me is for, you know, for uh, when I'm gone, that my children and their children and their children are eating off or benefiting from the works that their grandfather, great grandfather put in. So I think that as filmmakers, we all should be aware that this is very important. We got to look down 50 years from now that we want our children's our grandchildren to say, OK, my grand granddaddy or my grandmother left me something that, you know, that, um, that I can be proud of. So that's why it's important for me to uh, produce or contr control the content that I put out. Was your relationship with your grandfather very strong? I mean, is that something that you mm -hmm. remember and then you, you want to sort of emulate or? Well, I, on, my mom, on my mom's side, I didn't know my grandfather. And on my, so it's, it's tricky because on my, on my father's side, I didn't know my biological grandfather, but I knew the man who, uh, who married my grandma. And I didn't know that he wasn't my real grandfather because to me, as far as my biological grandfather, because to me, he, you know, he was, you know, he was there. And so I had a, we had a, like a great relationship with my grandfather. Uh, and again, to me, you know, we, we didn't know that he wasn't our real grandfather. Uh, I mean, I didn't know. I'm sure my brothers and sisters probably, because I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't care. Uh, but so, but with my grandfather, we had a great relationship with him, you know. So you always kind of remember that uh, and yeah. you, you want to be that to... Yeah. future generation. Yeah. So I had a, I had a better re, uh, relationship, relationship with my grandfather than my uh, my real father. And I didn't know my, again, on my mom's side, my grandfather passed before I was, you know, before I was born. So I didn't know him at all. So was he someone that was, would instill confidence in you and? and... No, my, my grandfather? No, so the, I think my father this is, I think, my mom says all the time, I remind her, and all of her children, I remind her most of my father. Uh, my father passed away two years ago of cancer. Oh, but he, he was, uh, he was always, my father, every time, I, I remember my father, he always did something for himself, he always worked for himself. 
And when he passed, he left, you know, he left farm for uh, his children. So we have a farm in Michigan. So he left something for us, you know, to, you know, that's why we have to, I, I tell my brothers and sisters, all, we, we have to keep this land because he put a lot of work into this land. So my, I never remember my father ever working for anyone. He always worked for himself, you know. Uh, so I think I got a lot, a lot of that from him is the fact that, you know, I had to work for myself, you know. Uh, so my father, even though he wasn't technically in my life like, you know, but he was a great influence on me as far as uh, doing what I needed to do as a uh, entrepreneur and as a businessman and as a filmmaker. He was a great influence out of, of what, you know, he was a great influence. Yeah. So even though maybe you didn't see him get up at four in the morning mm -hmm. or whatever it was, you just knew that he, he had that work ethic in him, obviously, if he's... Yeah. He, was, he, was, he, he, he was his own man. Like, my father was like, he was his own man. He didn't, you know, he was an independent man. You know, he, he did, I don't know what kind of work he did, but I know that he, he always, you know, he always, he worked, he did, he did for himself. You know, he always had a beautiful home. He always, um, you know, he always drove a nice car. <laughs> um, but I always, I don't, I never remember him ever going to work or working for someone. He always worked for himself. And I asked my mother, I was like, what did he do? You know, <laughs> what did he do? You know, for a living. So you know, he, he you know, he, you know, my father did his thing, but uh, his, the independence that he had, the freedom sure. that he had, is what I admired most about him. You know, uh, he could have easily worked for the uh, the post office or something like that. You know, he was a, he he went to the military. He was a mili He was in the uh, Air Force. Uh, so you know, those jobs. You know, he he easily came out and worked a job. But he's like, you know, I'm going to be an independent man. I'm going to have my freedom. And that's what I admire, I admire most about my father, is the fact that, you know, is that, and that, I think, taught me a lot just from looking afar off, you know, to do, you know, to want to do something for myself. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting when we look back on our lives and see, like, oh yeah, like this person that I saw, whether I had a good relationship or whatever it was, mm -hmm. I, or even if I knew them well, that I wanted to emulate something about them that I really admired, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I remember I was my mom, my mom and my father uh, divorced when um, I was seven years old. So when they divorced, of course, you know, you want like my father was like, you know, he was he was in my life for, and I remember I, I remember because uh, he had a drinking problem too. But I remember I remember I was about six years old or seven years old, the day he stopped drinking. Mm -hmm. I, I know exactly where we were at. The last time I ever saw him get drunk again. Um, so we were walking through an alley and I, I clearly remember I was like seven, eight, walking through an alley and he had, wanted to, we went into the, uh, the liquor store, he bought some liquor and then walking through the alley like in Inglewood and he just, threw the bottle down, and I never see him ever, ever take a drink after that. Um, and so when they divorced, my parents divorced, uh, again, you know, that was my father, and I was pretty upset, you know, I was pretty mad at him. And it was, um, I was in about sixth grade, and I had wrote him this long letter, <laughs> as far as my, you know, uh, as far as how I'm disappointed, and, you know, you left me and you were not in my life. And so he came over, you know, we had a conversation, you know, I was like, you know, he came over, he had a conversation and uh, 
So, you know, but after that time, like, you know, my father is, you know, he's a, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, he's, I, I admire him so much, you know, uh, even though he wasn't, you know, he wasn't there uh, with me growing up a lot, you know, but just seeing, seeing the, his freedom, his independence is, 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 you know, is why I always say, you know, and you know, that, you know, I love him for that. Yeah. I'm getting teary-eyed. You think you make me cry <laughs> And that made me, I think, um, that has a lot to do with me. And it's, it's interesting because uh, when I started making movies, he was proud. Yeah, he, he, would, he, would, he would call the people. My son, you know, he, he, was, he was very proud of that. So, you know, and, uh, and my, sister, my sister says, uh, she's like, because uh, my sister and my father are very close. They were very close, like very close. But I think that because he was so proud of me making movies, it's like, she was like, he always boasting about you making movies and stuff like that. But you know, it's a great thing. Yeah, my father is, yeah. <laughs> right. I'm gonna have to do a mascara check there. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had any near-death experience? Oh man, uh, my sister doesn't remember this, but I do. She doesn't. I don't know if I should tell the story, but I'm gonna tell it. And I, 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 I reminded her about it because my 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 brother was a uh, police officer. You know, he he had guns, but they were all legal. And we were very young. This was like, uh, I, I think I was in maybe like the seventh grade, right? And she, she swears she doesn't remember this. So we were all in my brother's room because my brother had like the big screen TV. And I would go there and we would go inside his room and we would watch like, again, the John Hughes films, Dolomite films. And, uh, and like when I, I remember watching... Um, and one of the things that really like stuck to me was one of my favorite films, Officer and Gentleman. And I think we were watching Officer and Gentleman that night. And and my sister was playing with my brother's gun, and she was she was pointing at point at me, and and it didn't go off. And she pointed to the side and it went off. But she said she doesn't remember. I was like Coco, like my sister's name is Coco. I was like Coco. She said I don't remember that. I said yeah. She's pointing a gun, but it didn't go off. So I think that's the only time, other than that, if that's considered a near-death experience. I don't know, maybe, maybe you know. But other than that, I, I, don't, I don't ever recall having any near-death experiences at all. Yeah. Thank God, thank God I didn't get shot. <laughs> well, yeah. My sister, I love my sister, yeah. That's nice. I you sound like you really have a close family. Yeah, well, uh, we're not as close as, like, I'm, I'm more close to, with my sister than my older brothers. But, like, me and my sister are very close. Like, like when I, when, even when, like, she was so close with my father. And, uh, like, my father, you know, like, when he had his drinking problem, there were things he would do. And uh, n nothing, like, abusive he was never he never abused us I don't even think my father ever he, I don't ever remember ever seen him ever whoop us at all he, he was not an abusive man even when he was he would get drunk he was never abusive uh, but he would like there was one time my sister she tells me that he came he, he took us me and my sister we were on the news and 
he took us to this graveyard. My mother said he would call her up and say, what are you gonna do? And, but my sister, and, she, and you know, he would take me, cause you know, I love candy. And he would buy me candy. My sister's like, you back to eating that candy. And, uh, and daddy said he's gonna kill us. And I was like, oh my God. So uh, my sister's always been there like as the, like, you know, she's always, always been a big sister. Like always, like now she calls me up. And always been a big supporter. Like whenever a film come out, she's one of the first ones to buy the movies. Whenever I need a movie or uh, want to see a movie, I go over to her place and she has all of my movies. So she's been a very a big supporter of, of, of my film career. Yeah. Do you think that's why you like to do movies about sort of people's lives and, and even, even the best of families can have, you know, squabbles or whatever? Mm -hmm. You think that's why you're attracted to that and not something that's more like violent or... Yeah, I think, honestly, I think that um, the reason I'm attracted to the stories that I write has a lot to do with um, the movies that I was raised, raised on. Again, like, I don't know how I can stress that, you know, I was like a, a, a big John Hughes fan. And I just, like, I would, I would watch his movies like Breakfast Candle, uh, Breakfast Candle, uh, Breakfast Club, and I would just watch his movies and just fall in love with his movies, you know, and watching the Spike Lee movies and watching Charles Bennett, just watching these movies. And I knew that, uh, that uh, even like the, the old, I don't the old Dolomite movies, they were like pimp movies, but they were, even in these pimp movies, there was a, a moral to the story. So I knew that you can, all, you can do these films and people can love these films and they don't have to have these negative images. And I'm sure that in growing up, I'm sure that growing up and growing up in the community that I grew up in because now the community that is known as Inglewood was totally different when I was growing up. Like when I was growing up, everybody on, my, on the block that we live on, we all, like even today, you know, we all consider to, we all call ourselves cousins and stuff like that. We're not blood related, but we all grew up in the, in the same community, but we were just all close. So those type of things definitely got an influence on me, you know, so, so many things got it, but those things just growing up in that type of environment where, you know, we would love that like people like on our block, uh, even though we were not uh, blood related, there was just still, still this strong type of love. So that's something that, you know, molded me over the years, you know, and know that you know, as a you know, as a filmmaker, those type of things are those type of moments in history are very important to me. And it's like a checkmate. Like I have to make sure that I'm conscious as, as far as conscious of the fact that I know that the the images that you know I have to put out the more positive images and stuff like that because that is that's what I was growing up. That's what I witnessed. You know, um, and it's interesting because. At one particular point, it was odd. Growing up, it was odd to see a single family home. Like, you know, in my community, it was like, you know, every, everybody was married. So it was odd to see, you know, a, a woman who lived, uh, who, didn't have a, who didn't have a husband. And um, so those are the images that I, that I saw growing up, you know, and those are the images that, you know, I want uh, in, to portray. How long do you typically spend on a screenplay? When I, it depends on the, uh, like if it's a romantic comedy, then what I do is I would um, give myself two weeks. Um, that's just for a first draft. And 
once that first draft is done, then I'm always tweaking, even up to the day that we shoot. Even if if we go on on set and something that doesn't feel right with the scene, then I'm, I'm going to tweak that scene. But uh, I don't give myself a certain amount of time to say, okay, well, I do give myself a certain amount of time as when I'm going to get pitch the screenplay when I have a one side, but that's normally takes two weeks, but it depends with a romantic comedy. So I have other screenplays like an action project or uh, I have um, uh, a couple of those that I spend a little bit more time with, maybe three or four months just researching and writing and doing things like that. But a romantic comedy, very simple, very easy for me to write. And those two weeks, knock it out in two weeks and then, you know, send it out and uh, for feedback. And then who are you sending it to for feedback? So I have uh, about four or five people who are uh, um, a couple of producers, friends of mine, a couple of actors, friends of mine, uh, who um, actually read it first and give me feedback on it. Yeah. So they're trusted people. You know they're not going to be too nice, but they're not going to be brutal if they don't need to be. Kind of. Yeah, but I want them to be brutal. Yeah. So I have a I have a guy who's a producer here in in in, in um in LA. I send it to him. He reads it. He gives me feedback. Uh, but I tell him I, mean, I need I need for you to be brutal. You know. <laughs> oh yeah. So yeah. And these are people who uh, the two young ladies I send it to. They're screenwriters. Oh. Yeah. So. Uh, but if, if they're not in the industry, I don't I don't send it because they don't really know don't understand what they're reading. You know, but they have to be in the industry in order for me to like send it out. Because if you're not in the industry, I think it's kind of, you know, you really don't know what you, you know, meaning that in the industry, meaning they, they understand screenwriting. Uh, they understand, you know, they're either they're an actor with a long list of credits and they understand like how a, screen, a screenplay should be formatted, the different beats, the different turning points. They have to understand the whole structure of the screenplay. So I just don't just send out just just anybody, but these are like people I trust and say, okay, they're going to give me this feedback to make this project better. When you say two weeks, does that mean like from the very first sort of kernel of the idea to all the way to the end or? Yeah, absolutely. Here's why. Because even before I write anything, I'm, I'm thinking about the screenplay from the beginning to the end. I'm thinking about thinking about thinking about it and then once I do the outline I make sure like when I do my outline so I say you know the first thing and I do minutes like I'm gonna have this outline this for two minutes or this for three minutes the scenes I, I, I put minutes next to the scene so I know that for this particular scene this scene has to be two minutes this scene has to be three minutes but norm then once I um, um, write the 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 um, the first draft, then it's like two about about two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. But once I have the outline, then I start on the script and give myself two weeks and say, okay, I'm gonna knock it out in two weeks. What do you think is your biggest accomplishment so far in your career? So my biggest accomplishment in my filmmaking career is there are so many um, there are so many negative images uh, that we put out as black people as far as in the music industry, in the film industry. Um, there's so many negative images, so many negative images. And I think my biggest accomplishment is put out more positive images and the images that I have put out, meaning this see black people more working and, uh, and you see uh, uh, the, the family unit, you see 
uh, black men actually being positive, doing something for themselves. So those images, those positive images, to me, that worth, that's worth anything because at the end of the day is that when people see those images, and I, again, like I get so many emails from people from all walks of life just thanking me for putting out more positive content. And that's and just putting out more positive content in this world, you know, that's worth more to me than anything at all. Like I, I can, I can, again, I can make a film for $10,000 as long as I'm putting them positive images out. Those important to me. And they're important to me because of this. Like we already know, we already hear like most people, most people, even black people are afraid to walk down a, any black community, you know, because I had asked the question on my, on my social media page, um, how many people would walk down the Inglewood community? And most people, black people said no. They would not go into the Inglewood community. I feel, I've done workshops, free workshops. They would not come into the Inglewood community because of the negative images. Um, so people are justified. People, people say that they're concerned for their lives and they have the right to be. So I think that once we put out more positive images, then we can change by change by changing the the images and by changing the condition of of Black America, meaning that the Black community where it could be safe, it could be uh, uh, a safe place to live. I think that we could change the scope of America, totally change the scope of America because our communities. You know, when you talk about the violence in our community, right? We think we know when we talk about the violence in 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 America. Nine times out of ten, we're dealing with the violence that's going on in the black community, and there's a reason for that. It's just is there's a reason for that. So for me, is by changing these images. You know, you see people who look at these images and say, "Okay, uh, I haven't thought about it like this." You know, uh, now you see people who can own their own businesses. Now you see people who can you know, uh, walk through a community. Like for me, Black and Privilege was like a community that, one lady said today, she said, I really enjoyed the fact that you, I see, you see the children who are out playing. Those images are important to me because when I was growing up, you had children who, who can go out and play. Nowadays, in Chicago, in Chicago, uh, a, a one-year-old young uh, girl was, was shot. This happened like three or four days ago. Now that young girl is is my this I'm on my second marriage my first my first wife brother's granddaughter that's how close it is but she was shot and so um, and I talked to my ex-wife about it a couple of days ago and she may not make it so but we hear the only on the we hear these these children being killed in a black community. So how do we stop this? So again, I think we talked about nothing, but we talked about how uh, well, China now is a superpower. But one of the things that they did to change the condition of the Chinese people to make them a great people that they are today was they put their artists together and they say, OK, we're going to put out more positive images. So for me, putting out more positive images, not only uh, not only correct the condition of 
the black community, but it can correct the condition of America as a whole, where people are not afraid to come to America because, America because of the violence that's in America, you know? And uh, so that's important to me, you know, very, very important to me because um, we can, we can, we can definitely change, change this country for the, for the best uh, uh, without having to quote unquote, you know, build a wall. Uh, that's how I want to see the entire world. I want to see a world where um, people, children, period, <laughs> can walk down the street. Uh, uh, women can walk down the street without being harassed. Um, a world where as that we can, uh, no matter where you are, that, you know, there's no reason, here's the thing, there's no reason why uh, our, our Mexican brothers and sisters over in Mexico, or we should even be talking about a wall, or, or they're trying to come over to America for a better way. People should be able to, you know, in order to come to America, it should be coming over as a tourist. Just like we go to different countries, we should have to go to different countries for a job. You know, um, we should go be able to go there, you know, just to relax, just to, you know, you know, if we want to come, okay, we, we want to, we go there, okay, to live, but not just to survive. People should be able to stay in, you know, uh, to live in their country where they can make a deep. I'm sure all. Every, I'm sure they all prefer to live in their country and make a decent living. Um, that's just natural. So there shouldn't be a reason why people have to go to other countries to uh, to make a living. Where there's enough wealth in this world, where we can take the, all human beings, right, regardless of race, class, all human beings can live a decent, a safe strong life and that's the world i want to see i want to see i, I want to see a world where we don't even be talking we don't even have to be talking about building a wall because our mexican brothers and sisters in mexico or uh not just in you know or, or our brothers and sisters in africa or our brothers and sisters in, in whatever country that you're in that you don't have to come you don't have to be with with the master okay i want to come to america for a better way of life because in your country you do have a better way of life. Everyone deserves a better way of life, no matter where you are in this world. You deserve to live. You deserve to live a good life, and that's that's what I want to do. And so my my greatest accomplishments is uh, is to show, um, particularly because as a black man, black people in a positive image. But that's never. I'm never. You're never going to catch me showing anybody, regardless of who they are, in a negative image at all. So whenever I do characters about my Latino brothers and sisters, uh, uh, regardless of who white people, I always, like even with Black and Privilege, when I did the character about this guy named Big Papa, I sat down with David Crawford, make sure that who's the white guy in the film, you know, to make sure that these images are not making the white community look bad, or these images that are not, you know, when I did uh, do films and I have Latinos in it, Make sure that these images are not making the Latinos look bad, or so this very this very important to me. You know, I don't want to put out that negative energy at all. So that's that's been my greatest accomplishment, and that's better for me than winning an Oscar, <laughs> winning anything is the images that we put out to the world.
It's interesting when people, you were saying about like pointing a finger at other people or whatever, but it's interesting when people point within their own community, mm -hmm. whichever community it is, and say, I want to fix this problem, or I don't like some of the stereotypes, or I don't like how we're turning on each other. Mm -hmm. You know, Do you think sometimes people get rubbed the wrong way when, when you try to address that? Absolutely. Uh, just like yesterday, again, I, I think I was telling you yesterday, I was talking to this young lady and she was saying that uh, she pulled me to the side. She was like, look, this project, referring to black and privilege, was difficult for me to watch. And I, and I, I said, why? She said, because it's, it's difficult when you have to look at yourself and examine yourself. She said, it's difficult. And, um, and so whenever you have to, again, like, you know, it's easy to it's easy, it's easy for for us to like for people period to point the finger and and say okay this is why such and such is, is going on instead of just looking in the mirror and dealing with the evil within so it's easy to to, to um, point the finger because of, most of us don't like to examine self so when she said that I'm like you know she said but it needs to be dealt with. We need to talk about it. So this is what we do with Black and Privilege is that what we do is we don't we don't uh, point the fingers at nobody because you have to we have to correct our, our own issues, right? We have to deal with our own issues. And how do we do that? So there's a scene where um, the guy goes out, the one in the main character goes out because the, the people moving into the uh, from the projects moving to the the community, this thriving uh, Black community. And now you see all this trash on, on the ground. So he goes out with a paper bag and he starts to pick the trash up. So are we waiting for somebody else to come and pick the trash up? Or are we going to just say, okay, if there's trash on your street, on your block, you can't depend on the city to go come and pick that trash up. It's just as simple as that. Pick the trash up, you know? And uh, so that's what the project is about. It's about... Um, it's about examining self and correcting self. And so our communities, communities can be safe and decent. Like we all should, like, this is, this is just, it's a human, it's, now that is a human privilege. It doesn't have to do with, another thing too is that I know we, we talk about, you, you see a lot of things, people talk about white privilege, right? And I know people may disagree with, disagree with me on this is the fact that why should we ask anybody to give up their privilege? Like, I like. I don't think we have a right to ask anybody to give up their privilege because uh, we just have to. Every human being, like a, every human being, like sh should be like like to go out and, and walk down a decent neighborhood, or a safe neighborhood, or. Uh, to have your community to be economically strong, that's a that's a, like a privilege, and that's something that we don't want to take away from other people. Like like, you have that right. You have that right to live in a decent neighborhood. You have that right to live in a clean neighborhood. To live in a economically strong neighborhood, and nobody have the right to take that 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 privilege away from you. Just create your own privilege within your neighborhood to make it strong, to make it decent. To, uh, so your children, our children can walk down the street. Our women can walk down the street. You don't see uh, guys hanging out on the street. 
nobody should be nobody should be asked to give give up their privilege for anything at all. You know, you know. So that's my thing on that. That's my take on that. And has anybody criticized you on the movie from within the community because they felt that something wasn't portrayed right or you were making a statement or something and they felt angry and you were surprised? Absolutely. Last night. So last night, uh, I was sitting. I was sitting in the. In, I was sitting in the front, but the lady in the back of me, she didn't know I was a director. She's oh, like, no. I don't like the way he's betraying us. I don't like it. And the other lady was like, "You have to." They were. They were having a conversation. So these are the conversations that I want. So later, I was like, I don't, "I don't. I just don't like the way it's, it's negative." So the lady, the other lady was like, "Well, uh, uh, you have to see what the guy's talking about. What, what, the, what the movie is talking about." Just look look at the messages that's up in there. The other lady was like, so doing a Q&A, the lady who was, who was just like, I don't like it, she got up and she left. Oh. So, yeah. So, I mean, because it's hard to, it's, I'm telling you, it's, it's very hard to to look at and examine itself. It's like the most difficult thing. So, it's easy, like, even as filmmakers, right? So, as filmmakers, we can say, like, you hear a lot of filmmakers say, well, they uh, they don't want to do anything, or high, upset with Hollywood, because they can't, because they don't want to, uh, um, because they, they're they not making films. So they put the blame, place the blame on Hollywood and say, they're not, it's this whole this whole thing, Illuminati, and said that, you know, this, the Illuminati won't allow me to make movies. No, oh, man, you won't make movies. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the Illuminati, you know? So, so it's easier to blame things on the Illuminati or to say the reason why certain people are successful in the business because they're doing certain things. I saw them give the sign. Yes, I'm like, <laughs> come on, man. Maybe these people just work hard. You know, uh, they did something. They, they they didn't they didn't go in with the mindset of I can't do it unless I sell my soul. You know, um, so. But it's easier to say those type of things when you feel that your our careers are not progressing the way we feel like they are. So it's easy to say, it's the Illuminati, blaming on the Illuminati, instead of saying, okay, maybe uh, I'm just not projecting my mind to do, uh, maybe, maybe it's those are the thoughts. Cause you know, the, the, subliminal, the, the, the subconscious mind is very important. It's very powerful. So if you think, think that the only way you can be rich or the only way you could be successful or do this is because you, or you have to say yourself, then you're never going to be successful. You're never going to be rich because you feel that in order to get these things, I have to sacrifice something. I have to sacrifice my soul. No, you don't have to. You can be wealthy. You can be rich. You can be successful and still keep your moral, uh, uh, the moral fabric of who you are as a human being. But we, 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 we give our subconscious mind this, uh, these commands when we really don't have to. I mean, we have to just know that we can be successful regardless of what. Yeah. We know there's xenophobia, which is fear of the other. Mm -hmm. And I forgot what the term is for fear of people within your own group, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But it is really interesting to examine that. Whatever, whoever your group is, whether it's in church or, or, or college or your neighborhood or street racing. Uh -huh. um, but it's just interesting because I think that's like a taboo topic uh -huh. because it's like, well, no, we're supposed to, but when there's issues within the group with everybody, whoever they are, and there's stereotypes that certain people are supposed to live up to, 
I'm more referring to my own situation, but it, it, it makes people very angry and, and, and it's, it's, it's very taboo to kind of talk about that. And, you know, I applaud you for, I haven't seen the film, mm -hmm. but I applaud you for doing that because, you know, you, you are going to rattle people, whatever it is, when you talk about your own neighborhood or whatever it is and you, and you challenge stereotypes. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the things that um, a couple of audience members said yesterday that one guy said, um, he's, he, he's like, man, he said, I'm just stunned. I, I really don't know what to say. He said, I mean, he said, uh, this is, is needed. He said, but I just don't know. I, I don't know what to, you know, he's like, I don't know what to say, but it, I know this is needed. You know, I'm like, it is needed. I mean, I know it's because it's in the audience to be like completely silent when watching this film. I'm like, okay, like what's going on? It's like silence because people are thinking, people are thinking, and people are. Um, and I've, like yesterday, I've seen some people get up and walk out because it's difficult. It's it's it's, it's difficult to uh, again, it's difficult to like look at self. So you know, they get up and walked out. It's like. You know, it's nothing you can do about that. <laughs> you know, it's nothing you can do. But as as long as as long as uh, we place the blame on others and not do self critique or look at self, then we can never get out of the condition that we're in because we're always pointing a finger instead of just saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do to correct the issues in our community. And people like no one wants to see like what human being wants to see a, a one-year-old child gets killed. No, no one wants to see that. People want to see, like people want to see uh, a community, all communities, I'm sure, decent, safe. People want to see that, you know? So that's just, that's just my take on things. Yeah. Do you, are you going to do a volume two? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Is Already in the works? Uh, well, I started to outline it, and it's gonna, yeah, I'm definitely gonna do a bottom too.